Does anybody need an envelope? And it doesn't matter if you came prepared to give or not. If you do not have an envelope, please raise your hand. Whether you came prepared to give or not, let's make sure everybody gets one. Thank you, worship team. That was awesome again. Glory to God. And on the computer, we can start going to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9 in the Amplified. In the Amplified. One of the things that uh, the Lord told us to do, and we didn't understand it when we first started Boomerang, was He said, give every adult an envelope. So, like, if a couple comes in, we didn't give one envelope to the couple. We gave every adult an envelope. And we didn't fully understand that. We just knew that we had the command of the Lord. And uh, so we did that. And then at one time, uh, our finances got kind of low in the church. And uh, I went to the Lord. You know how, you know, we're getting serious. Like, hey, what's going on, Lord, you know? And, uh, you know, all of a sudden people start praying, you know? And um, so I start praying. I said, Lord, what's going on? He said, I told you to give an envelope to every adult. I'm like, well, I told somebody to do that. Is that not happening? I went over to that person like the next day. I, I saw him at church. I was like... Are we giving an envelope to every adult? Well, no, I don't give one. I said, the Lord said, give an envelope to every person. I didn't understand what he was doing, but I understand it now. The word says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that the Lord gives seed to the sower, right? He gives seed to the sower. And also he says in that same passage, he talks about the fact that out of our sowing, out of our giving... Uh, in, a, in an abundant heart, he shows that we move to abundance. And out of abundance, we are prepared uh, to do every good deed or every good work. And y'all, we've been talking about that scripture a lot. So in other words, a lot of times people can just manage and get by by paying their tithes, but they really move into the abundance of God by their giving over and above their tithe. That's where a lot of people are missing it. They may tithe. Most of the church, honestly, in America doesn't tithe, uh, and that's why they have some of the problems that they have. But when their offering gets involved over and above the tithe, tithe is 10% of your increase, you go into the offering, you start moving into the place where abundance can happen. And here's the thing. He says he gives seed to the sower. Well, one of the things that we recognized is even if people did not come prepared to give, they didn't come prepared to give, every time when they walk in the door, we would give them an envelope. And that envelope costs the church some money. We gladly give it to every person. But they can take that envelope, not fill it out, and they can basically take it right back and throw it in here, and they can jumpstart they're giving. In other words, they give that seed. God has now given seed to the sower, something that costs the church money. They can plant that seed and then that seed can come up into a harvest and it can start the whole uh, flow of their giving. So that's what the Lord did. I thought that was awesome. We didn't know what we were doing at first. We were just being obedient. But he showed us a way to jumpstart somebody's giving, even if they're not prepared to give. What a great thing. God's so awesome. He, he's just great. So whether you're prepared to give or not uh, tonight, 
Even if you're not, you have seed in your hand. This costs something, and if you just return it, don't just throw it away or stick it in your Bible. It actually can be used. It might not seem like much, but it's more than the lady with the two mites. Right? It costs more than that. And hers was the greatest offering that day. She gave more than everybody. So I want to look tonight in the Amplified in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I just want to read it to you. I'm not going to expound too much on it. Tonight we have uh, evangelist John Edwards here uh, and his lovely wife, Miss Trish. And we are so grateful to have you guys here. And uh, amen. Amen. Glory to God. And we, we were talking just on the way uh, from the restaurant earlier, and we were just talking about a couple ideas that the Lord had given both of us. And we, actually, this week, he said something to me, and then you said it in the car as well. So it's the Lord's moving. And we're talking about reaching. Now I want you to hear this. These, these are real numbers. The potential for reaching hundreds of millions of people yeah. with the gospel. Is that right? What we were talking about? So... You know, what we have sitting here today is the potential for this group and this room to touch hundreds of millions of souls. That's not an exaggeration. It's, it's real. We're talking about God giving us wisdom, using technology the right way, and hundreds of millions uh, coming to the kingdom. Matter of fact, we got in the car and one of the first things that he said to me, because we have a vision for 20 million souls in 20 years, one of the first things he said to me was, that might be too low. You know, I was like, glory to God. Amen. I like it. That's, and the God's challenges, uh, Steve and I were talking last night about how the Lord's challenging us to think bigger. Think God's normal, you know, think outside the box. Think, think excessive, abundant. You, you serve an excessive, abundant God. I mean, he could have just thrown enough fish in that net for them to eat really good for a week, but he didn't do that. He threw it all in there for all of their partners to eat good for a long time. He's, he's an abundant, excessive God. Think bigger. Amen. I want you to look at this, and I, I won't have to say much to it. It speaks for itself. I'm just going to read this to you. Uh, I might say a couple of things because I'm not sure I'll be able to help myself. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1. Paul talking to the church. Am I not an apostle, a special messenger? Am I not free, unrestrained, and exempt from any obligation? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord... Are you yourselves not the product and the proof of my workmanship in the Lord? So what's he saying? He's saying, look, you sitting here in this church is a product of my calling. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. You prove that I'm called by God simply by being here in the body of Christ. You're a product of my ministry. He says, your product and proof of my workmanship in the Lord. In other words, they were connected to Paul, right? He says, verse 2, even if I'm not considered an apostle, a special messenger by others, at least I am one to you. For you are the seal, the certificate, the living evidence of my apostleship in the Lord, confirming and authenticating it. Verse 3, this is my real ground of defense my vindication of myself to those who would put me on trial and cross-examine me. In other words, if somebody started to ask, are you called by God? He would just say, hey, look at this 
church in Corinth. You know, look at them. They are the proof that I'm called, right? And then he says here, verse four, now we're getting into it. Have we not the right to our food and drink at the expense of the churches? Come on, man, preach it. Come on. That's good. So I'm going to keep my mouth shut right here, but have we, have we not the right... Have we not the right also to take along with us a Christian sister as wife, as do other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, Peter? In other words, when I travel, shouldn't I be able to take my wife? That's what he's saying. Shouldn't I be able to? And, then, and the question is, shouldn't I do this at your expense? You're in the kingdom. You're saved from the eternal hell. You have benefited and you have profited because I preached the good news to you. Paul's saying to them, don't I have a right to expect that? Yeah. You know, and the, the reference here is, yeah, he does. And he's saying, you know, basically in the next verse, he says, and you think I should just go by myself and never have my wife come along with me? That's not right. You know, I got a family too. I'd like to see my wife sometime. That's basically what he's saying. Then he says this, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from doing manual labor for a livelihood in order to go about the work of the ministry? In other words, is it just Barnabas and I that just got to suck it up? <laughs> like I said, I'm not going to say too much. I'm just going to read you what the scripture says. All right. Can we get that up on there? Is it following me? Amplified. Amen. Verse 7. Consider this. What soldier at any time serves at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not partake of the milk of the flock? Do I say this only on human authority and as a man reasons? Does not the law endorse the same principle? For in the law of Moses it is written, You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the corn. On, is it only for oxen that God cares? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I, I've found if you pick your toes up off the floor, you can hold them in the seat and not get them stepped on as much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I remember the first time I heard this read in the Amplified, I was like, I'm a heathen. <laughs> I'm, I'm awful, you know. I, I was like, man, I need to pay more attention to this. You know, if there's people in my life that are leaders to me spiritually or they're advancing the kingdom of God, I need to look at them differently. And this, this really, it, it hits the nail on the head. And, it, and so he says, look, he, he even says the law says. That an oxen has the right to eat some of the corn that it's, you know, treading out. In other words, God cares more about oxen than he does the human beings made in his likeness and image to carry the gospel. Not, not possible, not happening. Or does he speak certain, certainly and entirely for our sakes? So was the verse about the oxen just for the oxen, or is he really talking about us? He's talking about us. Assuredly, it's written for our sakes, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in expectation of partaking of the harvest. 
If we have sown the seed of spiritual good among you, is it too much if we reap from your material benefits? And I want you to see right here, right there in that verse right there shows you that the gospel being preached should come about to a material benefit in your life. There's proof right there in that one verse. God wants to bless you materially, not just spiritually. But when it happens, when it happens, we're supposed to remember where it comes from and who sowed the time and who sowed the word inside of us to get us to that point. Amen. Amen. I'm trying not to preach, Brother John. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Verse 12, if others share in this rightful claim upon you, do not we have a still better and greater claim? However, we have never exercised this right, but we endure everything rather than put a hindrance in the way of the spread of the good news of the gospel of Christ. Now, I will tell you that over when he writes to the Corinthians the second time, he references this and he's talking about this in a way. And he says, did I do you a disservice by not charging you? Basically is what he's saying. He's like, did I mess up? Did I take away your ability to sow and therefore move into your abundance because I didn't charge you? Maybe I should have charged you. He said, did, did I do you look for that word? Did I do you a disservice? So in other words, what he's saying is I'm trying to bring this gospel to for, to you for free, but you should recognize that the gospel doesn't happen free. I heard it just this week. Somebody paid for you to hear the good news. Somebody paid. For you to hear the good news, it costs somebody some money somewhere. So shouldn't we receive that and then out of the blessing of God also return that so that somebody else can hear it? All right. So then he says, let's see here. Do you not know that these men are employed in the services of the temple, get their food from the temple? And that those who tend the altar share with the altar in the offerings brought? He's referencing Deuteronomy 18.1. On the same principle, the Lord directed that those who publish the good news, the gospel, should live... And get their maintenance by the gospel. But I have not made use of any of these privileges, nor am I writing this to suggest that any such provision be made for me now. In other words, he's not writing this. He's not telling you this so that you'll make provision now. He's writing this to get something inside of you to change our way of thinking. Why would he want to change our way of thinking? Because if he'll change our way of thinking towards finances in this way, it'll change our life. And actually those material blessings can now multiply because we get the love of money that keeps us from giving. We get that love of money put down. Okay. He knows this and that's why he's teaching it. He says, but I've not made use of any of these privileges, nor am I writing this to suggest that any such provision be made for me now. For it would be better for me to die than to have anyone make void and deprive me of my ground for glorifying in this matter. 
For if I merely preach the gospel, that gives me no reason to boast, for I feel compelled of necessity to do it. Woe is me if I do not preach the glad tidings of the gospel. Let me just say, he's, he's hitting something right here. I should expect, just like what he's saying here, I should expect that my living as a minister comes from the material blessings of the people that I minister to. I should expect that. But at the same time, if I take the heart that if I don't get that, I won't preach, I'm messed up. A, a minister that's walking right with God will preach no matter what anybody does. And they won't stop. They'll keep on preaching and keep on preaching and keep on preaching no matter what anybody does or anybody says. Because they're moving under a compulsion by the Spirit of God to spread the good news. And if they don't have that drive, they don't need to be preaching. At the same time, if we don't have a drive to support the furthering of the gospel, we're guilty. We would be guilty of the same thing. So if I got up here and said, I'm not preaching unless you back me up by giving to me, that would be wrong. But if you sat there and said, I'm not, I'm not giving because you should want it. That's the same wrong. It's just in reverse. It's just flipped the exact same wrong. I'm expecting to get, to get something, but never support the gospel itself. I'm not willing to support it. And see, that's the same mentality, the exact same thing. It's just two sides of the fence. For if I merely preach the gospel, that gives me no reason to boast, for I feel compelled of necessity to do it. Woe is me if I do not preach the glad tidings, the gospel. For if I do this work of my own free will, then I have my pay, my reward. But if it is not of my own will, but is done reluctantly and under compulsion, I am still entrusted with a sacred trusteeship and commission. What then is the actual reward that I get? Just this, that in my preaching, the good news, the gospel, I may offer it absolutely free of expense to anybody, not taking advantage of my rights and privileges as a preacher of the gospel. I want you to see right there. As a preacher of the gospel, he has rights and privileges, and he is by choice not taking what is rightfully his. So he could literally stand up according to the law and say, what is rightfully mine is that you give into my life. But he's saying here, I'm not taking that right. I'm setting it aside. Well, that's an amazing heart. But on, on your side of it, listening to the preacher, you ought to understand that he has a right to do it. And therefore our heart should be to honor the will of God in that and to give that, give into that right before it's ever even have, has to be asked for. That, that's our heart. I have to do the same thing uh, with people that minister in my life. I, I, I tried to do the exact same thing. We've talked about some of that stuff. All right. So then he says this, for although I am free in every way from anyone's control, I have made myself a bondservant to everyone so that I might gain the more for Christ, that I might gain more souls, more people, more fruit. To the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win Jews to men under the law. I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. 
to those without or outside of the law, I became as one without law. Not that I am without the law of God and lawless toward him, but that I am especially keeping within and committed to the law of Christ that I might win those who are without law. To the weak wanting in, that are wanting in discernment, I have become weak, wanting in discernment. That I might win the weak and overscrupulous. I have in short become all things to all men that I might all means at all cost and in any and every way save some by winning them to faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is because money might trip up some of those, I'm expecting that the church will back so that I can go out into the world who has no concept of kingdom finances and I can preach to them without having any ties that I might become like them and let the things of God be preached, the good news to them be preached and they don't have to pay anything. I can give it to them freely. That's what Paul's saying. You, by your giving, gives me the ability to do my job. You allow me to go in there and I can go, uh, I can go and I don't have any ties to anything. I'm not held up by time. I don't have to go get the second job because of that. And so I can spend more time winning souls. I don't have to go and talk to people that don't even know Jesus and say, give to me so I can tell you about Jesus. They don't have to do that. Paul says, I'm free of all of that. And it should be that he's free because the church sees that and says, we benefited because of you and we want to give. Last verse, verse 23, he says, and I do this for the sake of the good news, the gospel, in order that I may come become a participator in it and share in its blessing along with you. Look at that. The gospel has a blessing in it. And the whole reason he's talking about it is that so that you and I can share and become a partner and a participator in the blessing of God. You're telling me that money leads to a blessing of God. That's exactly what Paul just said. The finances lead to a blessing of God. Tonight, we have somebody that's going into all the world and preaching the gospel. And although you might not have gotten your spiritual life from him, you will receive from him tonight. And he will go out there and he will be bringing the good news into the world. And you have the opportunity to let him go completely free, able to do what God wants to do through him by giving into that ministry. Tonight, we have the opportunity to partner with and participate with the good news and bring about the blessing, not only for you to be able to minister, but we receive a part of the harvest and we become partners with him in that ministry to win hundreds of millions of souls over time. Amen. That's a, not just, is it a great responsibility? It's a great opportunity. And so tonight, as you prepare your offering, I just say this, say, I just ask you to ask the Lord, Lord, what would you have me to give? What would you have me to sow 
into this ministry. We want to participate, not just leave, leave them high and dry without any kind of finance, without any kind of supply. Lord, what can we supply and give and sow into the ministry of John Edwards? So, Lord, we just ask you right now, Father, what can we do? What can we give? What, what would you have us to partner with to give, to sow into your kingdom through his ministry? We praise you for it, Lord. And whatever you say, we know that whatever you say, we have the ability to do. So, Lord, we'll be obedient with whatever you say. In the name of Jesus, we praise you. Amen. 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 If you're making out checks, you can just make them out to Boomerang Church and we will, whatever comes in tonight, every single bit of it, uh, will go straight to him and his ministry and we'll just write him one check. So you're welcome to do that. And so if you would just stand up whenever you're ready. Father, we thank you. Would you, where's Patty? Will you just pray, play lightly? Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy. And whenever you're prepared to give, just uh, we'll bring it in just a second and drop it in the baskets up here. Father, I just thank you right now. You may want to lift your offering to heaven. Just it's a part of your offering. It's a part of your heart. Father, these offerings, this giving, it represents their life. It represents time. It represents sweat. Sometimes it represents blood, sweat, and tears. Lord, we don't, we don't hold this up lightly and we don't give lightly. We take what is costly to us and we give it to you so that the kingdom of God may be advanced. Lord, I just ask now that as their heart gives in the generosity, in the cheerfulness, in the giving of their heart, in the abundance of their heart, as they give, Lord, let it be pressed down, shaken together, running over. May it be returned unto them in their lives. Father, thank you for pouring out your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. You can bring your offering. Thank you, Father, for all of your goodness and your mercy. We praise you. We love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Miss Kelly Loveland, we're glad to have you tonight. <laughs> Amen. With you are a community church. We love you. And uh, we love you and Ron, and we just honor you. So I want to say hey. Hey. <laughs> hey. That's the Forrest Gump way. Hey. <laughs> we just welcome... Mr. John Edwards Evangelist tonight, and we are excited for whatever the Lord has for you. Uh, he's going to tell you some of who he is and, and what he's done and what he's doing and just lead you. He's going to let the Holy Spirit just lead him into exactly what we need here tonight. And we are excited to receive you. So please come on up and, and let's, uh, let's get at it. Amen. Thank you.
Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you very much. You can be seated. It's a real privilege to be here tonight, and thank you so much for, uh, for, for having us. Uh, myself, my wife Trish, and the, the team, the guys, uh, Gary, Justin, and Dermot, we've all thoroughly enjoyed being here. You're looking after us really well, and we, I can tell you we really appreciate it. When you're on the road a lot, it's nice to be in a place where you really get looked after and you're treated like family, because we are family. We might be from, we might be from a different country, but we're family, amen? amen. And um, I believe that God's brought us here for a purpose. Amen. Uh, I'm really not interested in going around just preaching in another church. Come on. I'm really not. Because that's just like a flash in the pan. Yep. And it doesn't do, it, it burns you. Okay, it, it doesn't make a lot of difference. And I'm doing this too long. I, I'm in full-time ministry for 26 years. And I've been, um, uh, I've been on the road. I, God only knows how many miles I've traveled and walked and prayed over the years. And, um, but we've never been in this particular part of the world before. So it's a real privilege to be here. Uh, I really mean that. And I say that on behalf of the team as well. This is my gorgeous wife, Tricia. And uh, just say hello to everybody, Trish. And um, Trish the dish, I call her. And uh, we, were married, we were married 20 years just in September. And uh, I'll explain to you how all that happened. And um, I want to introduce myself to you a little bit first, okay? And uh, but before I do so, I want to pray. Father, I, I, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Oh, Christ, I pray you come, Lord. And I pray that the ministry, the deep, deep ministry of the Holy Spirit, Christ, our Deliverer, I pray that you would manifest your great presence here amongst us tonight, that people will be sovereignly delivered by a touch of your hand. Christ, our Savior, I pray that you would come and save souls here tonight. Jehovah Rapha, God, our healer, I pray you would come and you would sovereignly set the captives free of all kinds of sicknesses, both mental, spiritual, physical, in every way. It would be set free. Lord, I place myself into your hands. Lord, I declare it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. Lord, let my voice be your voice. Let this message be your message. Let the anointing be your anointing. May there be an impartation and not just information. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, God's taken us all on a journey. And the ultimate place where we want to be is in the perfect will of God. The ultimate place where we want to be, what it will look like, it'll be in the greatest promise that God ever had for us. And I want to, I want to bring you on a journey tonight. First of all, to explain to you my testimony. And I'm not just going to give my testimony, just, you've, you've heard testimonies before. I don't just want to add my testimony to it. I want to explain something to you. I want to explain to you the things that happen in a testimony. Because in some places I go to, people say, oh, I don't have a testimony like yours. Of course you don't. You're not me. You know, but your testimony is precious. And a lot of people don't know how to look at their testimonies. So I'm going to share my testimony in such a way that will help you recognize different significant moments in your story. Uh, but before I do that, I'm just going to ask Dermot to get up and share his testimony, just a little bit of his story, just for a couple of minutes, Dermot. Just said, this is Dermot, he's an evangelist from County Kerry in Ireland, which is, 
We call County Kerry the kingdom. It's the most beautiful. If you ever go to Ireland, you have to visit County Kerry, Amen. the lakes and the mountains. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. So, Jeremy, just for a couple of minutes, explain your story, and then I'm going to go in to explain something about my story. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, John. Hi, everyone. Hi. Greetings from Ireland. And I promised I'd say hello to my wife. She's tuning in. I love you, baby. And my sweet daughter, Rebecca. Um, so, yeah, my story. Um, Okay, I, I, I was an addict for 13 years. Um, I had a lot of problems in my life. I, I, I grew up not really knowing God. Um, and I went through a lot of hurt in my life. Um, too long to go into. But one night, I had an experience with Jesus. Um, you know, as I was sitting there, you know, the Lord reminds me all the time, all the time. Like, you know, when, 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 when Jesus came to the tomb where Lazarus was, that, that just so reflects my life. You know, I was, I was in the dark. I was bound up. I was dead in my sins. And someone brought Jesus to the door of my life. And they rolled the door away. And he called my name. And I came out. But what happened to me was, I had been broken in addiction. I had to try taking my life. And I came to a place where I was really, really low. And one night, somebody invited me to come to a, a meeting. I went to the meeting and I heard a man stand up and he began to talk about Jesus like I've never heard before. He began to speak about Christ and how he could set you free and give you a new life if you could put your faith in him. And you know, that, in that, just hearing that was just totally different for me because I'd never heard that before. I, I grew up in a big family, I didn't know God. Um, you know, we, 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 we went to mass and stuff, but I didn't, I thought God lived in a box behind an altar in a red light. You know, I just didn't know God at all. Like that. And uh, so he began to talk, and, and, and it sounded really good. And I always say at the end, they gave me tea and biscuits. It was amazing. <laughs> so I left there, and the next day I got up, and I was like, my mind was telling me, you need to get out of this place. Uh, these people have got Bibles. Uh, you know, you need to leave this place. And uh, so I, I, I felt terrible, so I decided I'd go back and see the pastor. I drove from one town to another. It's about a 30-minute trip. And... That 30 minute trip was the best car drive I've ever made. I went in and I sat down at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He brought me into his, um, into his office and he began to share with me about Jesus. He began to pour the word into me. He began to tell me that you know that you could have a new life in Christ. That you didn't have to live in the dark anymore. That you could come out of the darkness and over into the light. And I didn't understand it all. I was saying, wow, man, he was loving on me. And I keep saying he was a believer, he was a Christian. It was my first experience with a believer. And he just loved me. He just kept loving me. And I never had that before. I never had any experience of that before. In my brokenness, in the darkness, I never knew or met a Christian. But he began to love on me. And you know, as believers, we need to do that. We need to take time with people and love on them. Yeah? And he, he poured that scripture into me. And then after a, about three hours, uh, around six o'clock in the evening, he said, are you ready to make Jesus the Lord of your life? And I said, I'll try it. Let's, let's just try that. I went out into the sanctuary, and I stood in the sanctuary, and he came to me and he said, right, repeat this prayer. He said, Jesus, I make you the Lord of my life. Come into my life, Lord. I fill me with your Holy Spirit. And when he did that, he put his hands on me. And when he put his hands on me, this heat came over my body. And I fell on the floor. Actually, God had a catcher there. The mechanic was dropping back the pastor's car. And he happened to be there to catch me. And I fell on the floor, and on the floor, something incredible happened to me. I just, my, 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 I had this euphoric feeling, and I began to tremble and shake out on the floor. And 
my mind began to fill with light. That's all I can explain what it was like. It was just amazing on the floor. And, and I had done some crazy things and I felt amazing before, but this was amazing. <laughs> and I was on the floor, was shaking out like this, and, and he was praying in the Holy Ghost. I didn't realize what it was then, but he had this strange language in Rasanda. And he took authority over the works of darkness in my life. And I tell you, I'm, I'm so glad I met a man that knew his authority in Christ, who knew that I, I needed deliverance. And, I, and it just stopped, and I got back up off the floor. And I had been an addict for 13 years. And God has set me free. Amen. He set me free. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And I tell you, my life changed. I, I went from brokenness into the light. And, and that's why I say when, you know, like when someone brought Jesus to the door of my life, Jesus called my name and I came out. But you know, when I came out, I had some, I was wrapped up like Lazarus was. I had some bandages on my life. Amen. And I had to be unraveled. Yeah. And, and I had to come under a pastor. And I came and he began to speak into my life. And he unwrapped me, you know. You know that scripture in, in, in John eleven forty four, I believe it says there. And he said, you loose him and let him go. The job of the church is to unwrap us. Amen. Just loose and unwrap us. Show the glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I, 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 my whole life changed. I, I, I couldn't drink anymore. I couldn't try to smoke. I, was, <coughs> I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I completely taken away out of drugs and alcohol and just smoking and all the stuff that goes with that lifestyle. And I tell you, I'm standing here today by the grace of God. Amen. And this journey here is just changing me. I mean, even my pastor preached this morning. Man, I want to put my heart on the altar. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. And I'm so grateful to John and Trish for allowing me to come and share. You know, my wife and I, we, have a, we, we went to Rhema for three years. We graduated at Rhema. I like the way you're talking about Brother Hagen. Man of God. Praise God. And we have a passion to travel now and preach the gospel. And we have a heart to come to America. So we're believing God for that in Jesus' name. And uh, everything that he can do in your life. So tonight, I'm believing God with you. Amen. That Maybe if you're here, you need deliverance. Maybe you're more like I was. Maybe you're just in the unwrapping process. But whatever you are, just allow God to do it. Amen. Amen. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, John. Thank you, Dermot. Thank you. I wanted Dermot to share a story because when somebody shares a story, you get a real sense at the end of it. You know, Dermot said, we were planning to come to America. You know, Dermot's been talking to me for many years about his future and the great things. He can see a future for himself. And the vision of this church is huge. The vision of this church is massive. And, it, and we've got to get that into our psyche. We've got to get that into our spirits, into our heart. And Dermot is here with us. Because God put it on my heart to bring Dermot here with us. To help him get used to the new land that he's going into. That he'll see that there's no giant in this land that he cannot take down. To help him see there's no fortified city that he cannot overcome. And we're with him by his side. Because we believe for great and awesome things. For, for all of us. For the whole team that are here. And I know God put in my heart to bring Dermot, to, to stand by his side, to let him see the giants are defeated, the cities are down, and there's an amazing future for Dermot. I believe in Dermot. He's my brother, and, and I love him. And, and, and I'm here to stand beside him to help him see these great things happen in this world. As we do this unto other people, so God will do it unto us. Amen? So my journey, um, I've just put a couple of notes down to share one or two things out of my story. And... Um, to, to let you see God's preparation in somebody's life through their journey. 
And I want you to think of your own journey. If you have your notebooks with you, take notes about your own journey. I will probably trigger some things in your own life where you'll see them, not just as negative things that happened to you, but preparation for you to take your personal promised land and then corporately as a church to take the promised land God has for you. Amen? Okay, I look back in my life. I was brought up in a business family. My father was one of the 20 highest salary paid men in the Republic of Ireland. He was the boss, he was the financial director of the biggest motor company. And um, so he, we were quite well off. We lived in a nice part of Dublin. We lived near the beach. We lived near the Guinness family, you know Guinness, the drink. We lived near the Guinness family estate. And a lovely house and a nice neighborhood, great neighbors. So that was great preparation. Um, I learned how to operate with business people. I was used to business meetings in the home. I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, I didn't feel threatened by business people. That was good preparation from way back then for my future life. But there was also other things going on in my life. And sometimes when people share a testimony, they tend to focus on the negative and not see the positive. Golden diamonds, you will not find them outside the front door of the church. You're going to have to dig deep to find golden diamonds in life. And they're scattered, sprinkled all the way through our lives. But quite often as Christians, when we hear the, the testimony, we just tend to look for the negative. And we can quite often get a habit looking over our shoulders to our past, looking for the things that influence us in bad ways, instead of looking at the things that have prepared us for God's journey for us. Do you understand that? Okay, another reality in my life back then was I was very, I was very shy. I was the first boy after four girls. I got four older sisters and two younger brothers. My, my wife, Trish, she has uh, 13, uh, there's 13 kids in her family. And uh, so uh, you had 14, I think, was it? 14 kids, a big, good Catholic families, you know, in Ireland. Okay. Um, so I was very shy and I was left-handed. In Ireland, if you were left-handed, you were called a kithog. It's a Gaelic, Celtic name. And it's got um, superstitious, kind of evil connotations to it. So my, my father decided that his eldest son, after four girls, was not going to be a left-handed kithog. So I was forced to hold a black rubber ball in this hand. And school and at home, I was forced to use my right hand. And I'd learned to lean over to the right hand side. I won writing competitions. I was so diligent and focused on becoming the best right-handed writer. And that's part of my character, that I would put everything in to try to be the best that I can. And I can trace that right back through my life. So, but psychiatrists will tell you that if you force a child to change from left-handed to right-handed, sometimes it can give them a stutter or a stammer. And I had the most horrendous stammer that you can imagine. In school, I couldn't put two words together at all. So I really struggled in school with this. Although I was popular with kids, take note of that, I was always popular with people. My neighbors loved me. All the guys in school loved me. I was kind of, I had leadership in the school. Even though I was smaller than the rest of the guys, I still was leadership. People were afraid of me because I was a little bit, had a little bit of a crazy kind of um, <laughs> edge to me, you know. And um, believe it or not, ladies, when I was born, I was 11 pounds. So I don't know what happened after that, but, but uh, I was 11 pounds and I was born. But nevertheless, the story goes on. And um, so I really found, struggled in school. So the teacher would say to me, John Edwards, when he's reading the history of the English nest, and they'd say to me, Edwards, what's the next word? I always knew what the next word was. I was reasonably intelligent. I could have been the top of the class, but I didn't want to put too much effort to be top of the class because I didn't want that kind of attention. 
But I didn't put lack of effort in that I'd be bottom of the class. I didn't want that attention either. I was happy mixing within the crowd. In the gang I was in, I was second in charge because I didn't want all the responsibility. Although I knew I could have been in charge. So I managed it myself so I wasn't fully in charge. Do you understand that? Yeah. And I've looked back through my life to look at my true testimony. This is my true testimony. A lot of people give testimony of the bad things that happened to them. So are you noticing the diamonds and the gold in my past already? So I left primary school and went into secondary school, I don't know, or high school, whatever you call it over here. And now I had to get to know a whole bunch of other people with my stutter. I remember one guy tried to bully me. I was small, one of the smallest in the class, and this guy tried to bully me. And one day he was up in a tree, and he was shouting down at me, and he was throwing branches at me, and everybody was looking. So I thought, what am I going to do? I need to make a stand for my... I wasn't afraid of fighting. In fact, I'm a pretty good little fighter. And um, so there was a few rocks on the ground. So I picked them up and I began to fire them at this guy. And I smacked him right in the forehead. And he fell out of the tree. And uh, I jumped on him and, and I beat him up. And from that day, no, nobody ever touched me in school. So I had to learn to do things that physically didn't look normal for somebody my size. And I did it to protect myself so I could stay hidden and not be, not be hurt by other people. I was a very damaged and hurt kid. I was sexually abused in my life as well. Not by family, but by somebody outside. All of this reality was going on in my young mind. I remember I would go to the dance on a Saturday night and it was a room about the same size as this and I was about 12 years of age and all the guys would be over here and the girls would be sitting over here. I remember there was a girl over there, her name was Sylvia Barker and I fancied her. All right, She was a little blondy one and I thought she was lovely. She was like my promised land. Okay, But there were too many giants for me to get across from over here to over here. I just could not find the courage within, my, within myself to get up and walk across the great chasm that it felt like across this room <laughs> to ask Sylvia to dance. Oh, and even if I could have, could have found the courage to do this, I couldn't speak. And I imagined my friends would be looking at me and watching me for not being able to speak. You see, in school, when the teacher would say, John Edwards, what's the next word? I'd know what it was, but I wouldn't be able to say it. Particularly if it started with a P or an S or a consonant. Or some of those letters are very hard to say for somebody with a stammer. So quite often the teacher would get me up the front of the class and the big bamboo cane would come out that they used to have in Ireland. And they'd hold you by the wrist so you couldn't pull your hand back. And you get six lashes. And sometimes the bamboo cane was split so it would pinch your skin and make you bleed. And that's what they used to do us in Irish. Did they do that in American school as well? No, okay. Well, they did, they did with us. They don't do it anymore. But <laughs> they did with me. And... Um, so, and, but other times he'd make me stand out in the schoolyard on a drain where all the rain used to run down. And you weren't allowed to move off this drain, you have to stand on it. And all the classrooms were around about the, the yard. And I would look and I would see everybody looking at me. And I began to wonder, what did they think about me? Uh, this is like 11, 12 years of age, self-talk begun. I don't know how it began for you, but this is how I remember my self-talk beginning. And it's nearly always negative, because you still don't know who you are when you're 11 and 12. So I imagine, why are they thinking about myself? 
the kind of conversation that my self-talk was having was, they think you're stupid. They think you can't read. They think you're small. They probably think you're ugly. They think this and that, but all, all these negative things, and my self-confidence might as well have been draining out from under my feet. And the teachers thought I was standing out there just getting a punishment for not being able to say the next word. There was much, much more than that going on. One day I met some people who were hanging out down around the community center, the youth, where all the youth used to go. And these guys were taking drugs and they were drinking. I learned at the same time my mother was taking Valium to help her with anxiety she had because my father was now becoming an alcoholic because of all the pressures of business. And I saw that the Valium were helping my mother. You've heard of Valium, yeah? yeah. They're a tranquilizer. And um, so I stole a little yellow Valium from my mother's handbag. Remember all the stuff that's going on me? I'm shy, I can't speak. I fancy Sylvia Barker across the hall, and I can't get over there to ask her to dance. It's funny when I look back now, but these were big things at the time. Right. That was my reality. These were the giants in my land. Right. I used to blush at the slightest thing. And for me, that was the worst problem in the world. I look back now and I laugh, you know, but at the, at, at the time it was awful. So one day I went to my mother's handbag and I took one, and it worked. I didn't blush so much. I didn't stammer so much. I didn't feel so self-confident anymore. My self-talk was things like, I feel a lot more peaceful now. That knot of anxiety that used to be in here began to untangle, and all because I took a Valium tablet. And I began to grow and build through my teenage years. I began to build confidence and grow in my personality with the help of a chemical. I began to drink as well. With the, with the Valium and with the drink in me, at the dance, I was able to find the courage to stand up from over here and walk across the hall and ask Sylvia Barker to be my girlfriend to dance, and she eventually became my girlfriend. You'd be pleased to know. But it was all with the help of a chemical. You see, this is how a testimony happens. How did you cope with your reality back then? Or if you're a young teenager now, how are you coping with the, you don't know who you are yet. You might be blushing. You're probably comparing yourself with everybody else in your, in your class and who's your age. You want this person's height. You want that person's personality. You want their outgoing character. You want this person's looks. You want that person's clothes. You wish you were in that person's family. Everybody always looks better. Guys, that's just the way teenage years are. But it's not always going to be like that. Even if you blush terribly, it's not going to stay like that. It'll be all right. That's right. You just need to stick at it. These are the growing pains of character growing. That's why I love doing schools work and talking to young people like this. And the tears that I see in the classrooms. The brokenness I see amongst kids. What, the way I coped with it. I don't know how you coped with it or grow with it. But the way I coped with it, I did it with drink and with volume. I became an alcoholic and a drug addict. And I ended up, 20 years later, taking 150 Valium a day. And sticking needles in my arms with heroin and barbiturates and every other drug and drink, even injecting alcohol straight into my veins. I've had a liver transplant. I've had cancer twice. I've had skin cancer on my head. I've had liver cancer. I've had hepatitis C. I had to get 41 pints of blood transfused just three years ago to keep myself alive. As a consequence, there are consequences to dealing with the pressures of life in an incorrect way. Have you got that? 
So my life went on, and back in Ireland back then, another piece of education I had was back in Ireland back then, there was no drug clinics, there was no methadone, there was no fiseptone, there was no, there was no drugs around, there was no needle exchanges where you could get clean syringes. Everything was, Ireland in some ways was quite a poor country, wasn't it, wasn't it? The Republic of Ireland was quite a poor country. So a lot of places didn't have electricity in the, down in the countryside. Would you remember that, would you? Okay, well, I'm a bit older than you. So, 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 um, so what they used to do with us as drug addicts, because I became addicted. And my parents were at their wit's end not knowing what to do with me. My parents loved me. So what they had to do with me, they put us into mental institutions. I've been in them about 10 times coming off drugs. Sometimes when I'd be coming off the drugs, they put me into padded cells and to straightjackets to restrain me because I completely lose the plot. And um, one thing that happened to me, one thing that changed my world was one night I was in this mental home and the lights were dim. There was... Um, I was detoxing up barbiturates, very strong sleeping pills. And I could hear a noise across the ward in the hospital. And I lifted my head and I looked and I could see, there's young people here, so I'm not going to go too deep in I won't go deep into it at all, actually. There was a, an old guy doing stuff to a deaf and dumb boy that he shouldn't have been doing. He was abusing him, trying to. And the deaf and dumb boy was trying to fight him off. The staff light was on, but the staff weren't coming out. And I was watching this. And an anger and a compassion came up in my heart. And I jumped out of bed and I ran across the hospital ward and I smacked that old guy in the jaw. I sent him into almost the 21st century. And he never touched that boy again, I'll tell you that. But I smacked him in the jaw and he went scurrying like a rat into his bed where he was sleeping. And then I knocked on the staff door. I knocked on the door of authority. I said, where were you? Why didn't you come out to do something about this? Why didn't you come out to, to protect that lad? Can you not see potential in that boy? Or is he just a deaf and dumb kid that you'll allow whatever to happen to him? And I challenged him. I remember, and actually when I did it, I was so angry, I probably, I, I probably spoke quite well. <laughs> That's an interesting point. A person with a stammer, when they're on their own and they're speaking to a mirror, you don't stammer. Yeah. Or if we sing, we don't stammer. Or if God sets you free, you don't stammer. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. But um, the staff turned to me and they said, they said, John Edwards, now remember how I look at myself. They said, John Edwards, who do you think you are? Good point, eh? You've no authority in this place. They said, shut up and get back into your bed again and be quiet. They said, you're just a drug addict. He said, look at the state of you. You haven't even got your own clothes on. You've got hospital pajamas on. And they began to mock me and sneer at me and laugh at me. And inside, I began to crumble. They beat me and beat me with words until I climbed back into my bed again. And I began to weep. And I'm looking around this mental and thinking, what's happening to me? I never intended to end up in one of these places. I never intended to end up like in a, in a, in a, in a, a padded cell or a straitjacket. What's happened to me? And I remember I was weeping and then I looked up and I saw in the dim light across the far side of the ward the deaf and dumb boy. And he was sitting there with his arms around his knees, shaking, whimpering. 
and compassion rose from deep within me. I thought, my God, am I the only one in here who can see potential in this kid? Am I the only one in here? The staff were back in their office. I looked over at the office. They're la probably laughing about me. I think, am I the only one in here that cares? And something went off my head. I thought, hold on just one second here. Maybe I'm the one that knows what's right and everybody else is wrong. Maybe I'm the one that can make a difference in other people's lives. These staff who are meant to see potential in us cannot see it at all. They think I'm a hopeless case. And something changed and I vowed that day that one day, somehow or other, I would stand up and I would begin to be a voice for other people who didn't have a voice for themselves. And I'd bring hope to people. Amen? Amen. So, you, so you see when you look back in your testimony, you see when you look back in your testimony, I am not the workmanship of a stammer. I'm not the workmanship of sexual abuse. I am not the workmanship of drug addiction. I am God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Because he's got good works for me to do. But you've got to look back in your life looking for the gold and the diamonds. So when I talk about these things, I still get a bit teary-eyed. Because it's so real to me, do you understand? So that's another thing that trained me in my life. Going on a little bit further, um, I remember when I ended up, um, when I was a kid again, my, my father, as an excuse when he was drinking, he would take me out down the road in the car, letting on, he was, to he was taking me for a drive, but he wasn't, he wanted to go to the pub for some beer. And he would leave me in the car outside, for hours I'd be locked in the car. Sometimes it would be hot and sunny, sometimes it would be cold in the car. And I was in the car sometimes for three or four hours while he'd be in the pub drinking. I loved my father and he used to tell me, don't leave the car. So I'd stay in the car and I remember saying to myself, as soon as I am old enough, I'm going to go into that pub and drink with my father. And I couldn't wait to be old enough to drink. That also formed something in my mind. And they let me actually drink in that pub when I was 13 years of age. That begun in that car, that conditioned me in that car to want to drink. I remember ending up on the streets of London. My friends began to die of overdose, accidental overdose, and then HIV AIDS came on the scene. And hepatitis C began to kill some of my friends. And out of a gang of 30 of us, there's only seven of us alive. I've watched all my friends die. And I ran over to London, where I ended up living on the streets. I thought a geographical change would help me, but a geographical change is not the answer. Because the first person I met when I got to London was myself. I couldn't run away from myself. And I ended up begging on the streets of London. I tried rehabilitation a few times, but I never made it in rehab. Because there were too many giants that I thought I couldn't overcome. And I remember one day having no money and I was sick with withdrawals. I was on heroin and other drugs at this time. And I was sick and I needed money for drugs. I was too um, broken at the time to, to, to do any, any robbing or stealing. And I actually didn't do a lot of robbers. I remember I mugged somebody once in my life. In near Buckingham Palace where the Queen lives, I mugged a guy in a park and I made the mistake of looking in his eyes. I wasn't brought up to do stuff like that. I wasn't conditioned to do stuff like that. 
And I was, kind of, I was the leader of a gang of punk rockers, Scottish punk rockers, with big Mohicans on them. And I was their leader. I'd become a leader. And um, we, I got this guy, and we took his wallet out of his pocket, and I looked in his eyes, and I saw the fear. And another self-talk kicked off in my mind, conditioning. What are you doing? And I realized I couldn't do this. And I took the wallet back off the guys, and I gave it back to the man. I said, help this man to his feet. And we lifted that man to his feet. I said, go home, sir. I said, I'm so sorry. I said, I've become a drug addict, and I'm doing stuff I never thought I'd do. I said, please go home. And that man ran as fast as he could. And I thought about him later that night when I was sleeping in my doorway. I was sleeping in doorways in freezing cold London. I thought about that man. And I imagined him going home to his house. Maybe his children were there in a lovely warm living room with a big blazing fire. I remember thinking this. I, remember, I could imagine him going in and his wife been there. And he'd be terrified and saying, guess what happened to me as I walked through the park tonight on the way home from work. I met these guys and some, they, they mugged me, but they gave me my wallet back. You know, I, <laughs> you know, I can imagine him telling the story going in. I imagined his kids sitting at his feet. I imagined his wife cuddling him and saying, you all right, Dad, and making him a cup of tea and getting his slippers. And I longed for these things. That was my promised land, to have a wife who would love me, to have a place I could call home, a place I could put my slippers on. That was my promised land, that along helping other people. But here I was, sleeping in doorways. And I had to begin to beg for a living. You have to dress yourself a certain way to beg for a living. I, I don't mean physically the clothes. You have to dress yourself in a certain kind of spirit. It's only with real brokenness that you can actually ask somebody else for money, for food or for drink or for drugs. It speaks of real brokenness. The next time you pass by a homeless person begging, they have a story to tell. They've got something going on inside of them they need set in front. Sometimes just to sit down beside that person and maybe get them a cup of coffee or a hot drink if it's cold or a meal and give it to them. And, maybe, and touch is so important. I remember one night going through Hammersmith Broadway station, uh, underground station in London. And it was Christmas time. It was so cold. And again, this is conditioning. It was so cold. And I had a little jacket on. I was freezing. And there was a choir outside Hammersmith station. And they were singing. And they were probably Christians. And I wanted somebody to talk to. And they were collecting money probably to help other people. And I had a very small amount of coins in my pocket, not enough to buy drugs with. And I thought, I'll give it to them. Maybe they can do something to help somebody else with what I have. But really, I wanted someone to talk to. And I went over and I put the money in the box. And there was a young girl, a young pretty girl she was. And I put the money in the box. I remember she was standing on the left-hand side of the choir, facing out, and put the money in the box, and I said, I hope this money can help somebody. And I wanted them to say to me, how are you? Is there anything that we can do for you? But they didn't, they just said, thank you. Don't speed through your life. That's right. Take your time, will you please? Yeah. Take your time to listen to people yeah. to hear what they're saying take your time these are all so important for revival in our churches yes. this is reflecting the heart of God to other people I remember I walked away down the freezing cold night down through London down past White City Greyhound Park I remember the tears streaming down my face feeling so lonely my mother back at home and my father and my brothers and sisters 
So these things condition me. I went to rehabs. Some of the rehabs I went to were shocking. They were terrible. They were crazy places. A lot of people have an idea they want to help other people, but they don't actually know what they're doing. Some people running rehabilitation programs are probably doing more harm than they are good. And I've been in some of those places. I could tell you some stories. So my life went on. And one day I was staying in an Irish doss house in, a, in, in, in northwest London, and, uh, like a hostel. And I was sharing a room with two other Irish men. And um, it was a filthy room. The only toilet was the sink in the corner of the room, the wash hand basin in the corner of the room. It was stinking. I'd come so low. That's what I remember. We would spend all our money on drink and drugs. We wouldn't even keep money for the heating. We'd get our drink and drugs and climb back into bed again and put our blankets over us. And we wouldn't even have the money to put into the meter for the electric fire or the gas fire that was in the room. We preferred our drink and drugs. So depressed. And one day the phone rang in that place and it was my sister Geraldine. And my sister told me that my father had died. And she said, John, we love you. She said, but don't come home to the funeral. We're afraid if you come home, you're going to get so stoned and drunk, you'll upset your mother and your brothers and sisters. So we have had a, meet, a family meeting and you're not to come home. But you know we do love you. And by this stage in my life, I understood where they were coming from. Because for every addict, there's a family. There's a mother and a father. There's brothers and sisters and other, other kids. And I understood my family were broken because of how I lived with them. There are at least four people significantly affected by an addicted person in a family. And they have to struggle sometimes more than the addicted person. And I understood this. So the morning of my father's uh, burial, I was a broken man. Can you imagine? And I needed someone to speak to. We need something with skin on to talk to. Sometimes God's not enough. You know, sometimes when, you're, when I wasn't a Christian, my concept of God was he was angry with me. I didn't know who God was. And it wasn't enough to speak to that God. I needed something with skin on. So I knew an old tramp who lived down a back alley. And I went down there. I, I knew I could talk to him. But I never talked about my problems. I would talk about anything but my problems. So I got some drugs and drink and went down this back alley. And I'm sitting there talking to him. And that, my father's getting buried back in Dublin at this moment. And I'm thinking of all... There's probably about 2,000 people at a big Irish funeral. All my neighbours and family and cousins and everybody would have been there. And I could imagine my mother sitting in the front row in the big Catholic church. And tears began to come into my eyes as I felt so ashamed of myself for not being there. And angry at myself and all the other emotions that were going on. And the tramp noticed and he said to me, he said, what's the matter with you? My nickname was Irish on the streets. He said, hey, Irish, what's the matter with you? And I quickly changed the subject and I said, nothing, I'm all right. And then I talked about something else. And, but about 20 minutes later, with the drink coming on more and more, I began to think back to the funeral again. And by the way, I've told my mother and father that I hated them. I told them that they were the worst parents on the face of this planet. I told them I wished I was never born. Somebody with a life-controlling problem will tell their family and their parents these kind of things. But we never mean it. We hurt the people we love the most. Because we know they'll never give up on us. The unconditional love of a mother is amazing. And a father. It's amazing. What they put up with. And I imagined my mother sitting in the front. And I wasn't there for her. 
and something just broke in me. And the tears, did you ever see tears jumping out with somebody? I know that morning the tears just jumped out. And I probably hadn't cried like that in years. And they streamed down my face and the old tramp said, come on Irish, what is it? And I opened up and I, between sobs, I shared with them. I said, my dad's getting buried. Right this very minute, back in Dublin. I said, I'm so broken. And that tramp, he got a hold of me. And he embraced me. I buried my head in his dirty old shoulder. But boy, that was a cool shoulder. I so needed it. Revival. Sometimes it looks like finding the people in your street and knocking on their door and saying, hey, what's the matter with you? And it's about praying for them in here and creating an environment in our churches that these type of people, they're terrified of coming over the threshold because they don't know how to talk about their stuff. They wonder, will they be rejected? They're wondering, how will you see them? How will these people see me? And the tramp said to me, he said, Irish, he said, go home, get your life together. And I listened to the advice. You see, when we share our problems, we get advice. Another lesson I learned. And I went home to Ireland. And my mother, typical Irish mother and American mother, she just, when she saw me, her face fell because I was about six and a half, seven stone. Uh, the 14, whatever that is in pounds, 14 pounds in a stone. So it was less than 100 pounds. And my teeth were kicked out at the time. I had long hair. I was skinny and dirty. And my mother, I could see she was disappointed to see the state I was in. But then she just gave me one of them great big hugs that only a mother can give. And I fell into her arms. And she let me stay in the house as long as I went to Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcolics Anonymous. And it was here I met some Christians. And they shared about how Jesus Christ had set them free from drugs and drink. And I went to one of their meetings one night because I began to trust there was something attractive about these Christians. I know a lot of Christians and there's nothing attractive about them whatsoever. <laughs> I do. Yeah. You think they, they think they ate sour lemon for breakfast? <laughs> I know a lot of I've been hurt more by Christians than I was ever hurt out in the world. Right. I've been treated better by tramps and drug dealers and gangsters than what I have by some Christians. I know we're live and we're live and live streaming as well. But I want to tell you, God's bigger than that. God's bigger than that. Because I went to a Christian meeting with these guys from Alcoholics Anonymous. And at that meeting, I began to call out to God. I said, oh Jesus. I said, if you're the Jesus that these people are speaking about, if you're as real as what they say, you must have seen me when I was at all my dying friends' funerals, dead friends' funerals. You must have seen me when I was sleeping in the freezing cold doorways of Dublin and London. You must have seen me when I was sexually abused. You must have seen me in the padded cells and the straitjackets and the times I was beaten up. You must have seen me through all this. I said, God, if you're as real as these Christians are making you out to be, please reveal yourself to me. Suddenly, it was that the power of God came upon me. And I've got, this went shooting down through the inside of my body. When it got down here, something snapped in here. And something like a big, long, dark shadow came up. And I, I let a holler as it came out that side. Like a big, long, dark, gray, gray shadow came out that side of my head. 
and then the power of God fell on me and I was shaking all over like this and I remember this girl came over and she said sir she said what's your name and I said between sobs John Edwards she said John Edwards she said sit down quick before you fall down she said I don't know who you are or what your past is but I can tell you this much your life is never going to be the same from this moment on and that's the truth for us as well yes. do you know the character and strength I learned as an addict to face giants of poverty to face giants of difficulty, to survive on the streets in the cold where people are threatening my life. I've had my life threatened so many times. I was able to survive those big things and now I'm a Christian. And a lot of Christians came around me and tried to turn me into a normal person. <laughs> I've never been normal. <laughs> I'm not normal now. Amen. I have absolutely no intention of being normal anytime <laughs> close in the future. Amen. Yeah. And some of you people, the lives that you've had, and I've shared my testimony like this to help you identify things that shaped you in your world. What shaped you in your childhood? Not just the bad things, but the good things. You need to rewrite your testimony yeah. and find the golden nuggets and the diamonds. I remember people said, but your father never hugged you, John. I said, how do you know? He said, well, and they're right, he never came and gave me a great big hug. But I remember one time when he was in hospital for his alcoholism, a really expensive hospital on Dublin Bay, it really cost a fortune to detox in there. And he was in there and there was a croquet, you know croquet? Yeah. There was a croquet lawn in there. And one afternoon he was, he was through the worst of his detox off the booze. And we were play, I was playing croquet with him. I was about 10 or 11 years of age. We were playing croquet and I couldn't play it very well and I had this big mallet and I was trying to hit the ball through the little hoops. I remember my father coming over to me and he came around and he stood behind me. He said, I'll show you how to do it son. And he put his arms around me and he held the croquet thing. And um, I remember that day, I remember his face rubbing against me here. He hadn't shaven that day. I remember clearly the bristles of his chin rubbing against the right-hand side of my face. I can remember the smell of my father. It was a mixture of pipe tobacco and brilliantine hair oil. <laughs> Most people probably don't like it, but when I think of it, I get a good feeling. It was the smell of my father. And you know something? He hung on to me for much longer than what he needed to teach me how to play croquet. My father didn't know how to hug. But he was creative in how he did it. I've learned to look at my past through the eyes of God. And I have found much more diamonds in gold than there are the bad things that happened to me. And all the healing power of that. Sometimes if we go to the wrong people to talk about our stuff in the past, we get stuck in the abuse and the negativity and the this and the that. Instead of being with some godly man or woman, yeah. that will bring us back and shine a light on our path. Yeah. And let us see the diamonds. Amen? Yes. Tonight, a bit later, we're going to go into the presence of God. And you're going to get in your knees. You're going to get in your face. And you're going to give God your past. And we're going to ask God to reveal to you the beautiful things that are back in your past. Yes. And some of us are going to repent, change our way of thinking. Like Pastor said this morning, we're going to repent from some of the th ways we think that we brought into church with us. And to help us do that, I want us to turn to a scripture. I've been clean and sober 27 years now. I've, I've, um, I've traveled 
to many, many countries all over the world preaching the gospel. Um, when I finished, I went to Teen Challenge Rehabilitation Center. I went to Bible school after I got saved. But I got expelled from Bible school after four months because I got stoned in the classroom. I didn't know how to maintain the freedom. I needed to learn. So I was the first Irish man to complete successfully the Teen Challenge program 27 years ago. And then I began to run and open up rehabilitation centres. I ended up at one stage with 35 staff and a budget of, of nearly a million pounds a year. And uh, all kinds of amazing things that God did. I remember getting a desire to write books, but then my conditioning from my past told me I could never be an author because I was kicked out of school when I was 15 for knocking out the history teacher. <laughs> that was my last day in school. I knocked out Mr. Finneran <laughs> because I just had enough of teachers hitting me. And Mr. Finneran, one day he hit me just one time too many and I stood up and I knocked him clean out. And I got the biggest cheer in the classroom that you ever heard. <laughs> and uh, uh, any young people, don't take the leaf out of my book on that one, all right? But, but, but um, I thought I couldn't write a book until one day, I was explaining earlier over lunch, one day I tried to find a ghostwriter to write my books, and I couldn't. So I began to attempt to do it myself. Although my past, the giant from my past was telling me, you'll never write a book. I needed to take captive those thoughts that were coming from that voice from my past. And I needed to make those thoughts obedient to Christ. It's warfare. My past trying to dictate to me what my future is. No, God knows the plans he has for me. Plans to prosper me. To give me hope in the future. Remember, I'm not the workmanship of addiction or abuse. I'm God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works that he prepared in advance for me to do. <coughs> so I, I write... 10 minutes and I pray 10 minutes I write 10 minutes I pray to it today I've written 3 books one of them is a bestseller and we have 2 of them here tonight I've only got a few books here with me they're nearly all gone and they're here at, at the end of the meeting tonight if you, if, if, you, if, if you want to purchase one that's another way I, I, was, I was trained but when I was in Scotland running rehabilitation centres every night I come home to my flat I've never even lived with a girl I was just a crazy drug addict alcoholic wasn't never a womanizer um, just, I had some girlfriends, Sylvia Barker being the first one, but I had a few girlfriends. But, you know, I was never really, my thing was drugs. It was like that was my life. But they were gone now, and I was running a rehabilitation on an island off the west coast of Scotland. And every night I come home on the ferry, and I go into my apartment, and I'd be in there on my own. And uh, I was quite content as a single man. And I remember thinking, wouldn't it be lovely to have a home to be in? To have a nice fire and and slippers and have a, a wife who'd love me for who I really am and I thought but well, I'm hopeless at chatting girls up you know I, I'm, I'm no good at doing that kind of thing so I thought well, what'll I do and I'd read a book called The Fourth Dimension by Young E. Cho and the book talked about praying specifically so I wrote down 22 things I was looking for on the woman I was going to marry and uh, <laughs> I didn't want her to be kind of six foot six you know as I'm only five foot six <laughs> you know I want her to be a Christian I wanted her to love me for who I am and not try and change me into a normal person. I wanted her to celebrate who I am. I wanted her to see potential in me and not just see the stuff that I was still working through. I wanted my wife to be able to take people into her home and detox people of heroin, of cocaine, of whatever drugs they might drink they might be taking. I wanted her to be prepared to take homeless people into her home. I wanted her to be prepared to go and live on the streets with the homeless because I live on the streets every year with the homeless. 
I live in the doorways with them in the winter and in the summer, in the snow and in the, in the hot sun. I live with the homeless still every year. I wanted a wife who would do this kind of thing with me. So I wrote these things down and I prayed for them. I wanted to be a bit pretty as well, that's allowed. <laughs> and I wrote these things down and one day I was driving through a small town called Largs in Scotland. It's the town where the Vikings were defeated in 1262. It's where my rehab was, just off the coast there. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, stop the car, go in that little Nazarene church in the corner, there's somebody I want you to meet. <laughs> now I hear men of God saying that God spoke to them that clearly, but for me it's never that clear. It's always like you got a bit of risk in it. I was, I was pretty sure it was God. Like 60% it felt like it was God. So I was so desperate for a woman, I thought, I'm going to give this a shot. Okay, so, so I parked the car, right? And I went across the road and I called into the Nazarene church. <laughs> and I walked in. I had no money in my pockets. And I thought, it was a coffee morning on. And this girl came over and said, can I help you, sir? And I said, oh, I said I'm just alive, actually. I said, I'm just passing by. I said, I wasn't going to say God told me to come in. All right. And um, so uh, she said, let me get you a cup of coffee, sit down over there. So I sat down over in the corner and she went into the kitchen to make a cup of coffee and I looked in and there was another girl in there. And I began to count off 22 things. Every girl was getting counted down, you know, what I was saying, you know. A new girl came in this year, she go, one, two, three, now. <laughs> and I counted down this one and they, two girls come out and speak to me, said, you're Irish, what are you doing in Scotland? I said, I'm running a rehabilitation centre. And the other, other girl who came out, I began to look at her and I thought, man, she's beautiful. She's got eyes like an angel, and she's so gentle, and uh, that was Tricia, and we got married a year later, just over a year later we got married, and Tricia, Tricia has, she has all those 22 things, and uh, we take the homeless into our home, we detox the heroin addicts, and the, we take prostitutes in, and we help them, and get, help them get their lives together, we live on the streets together, Tricia sleeps on the streets with me together, and uh, you know, somebody said, oh, you know, John, she said, no, should I, should I sleep on the streets with him? <laughs> And we do incredible things together, but we work from the ground. We've also met royalty. We've had royal visits to our rehabilitation programs. I've met presidents of countries. I work at the Irish government and advise them on... I've written to President Trump to meet President Trump. And through Rodney Howard Brown, it looks like it's going to happen as well. We got an invitation. We got an invitation to meet President Bush in 2005. I walked across America. You see, when I was homeless in London, I used to walk everywhere. I can walk for miles. You know, I, I can do an ultra, I can run 55 miles in a day. I've done, I did 36, 36 ultra, ultra marathons in 42 days. Like a thousand miles. I walked the length and breadth of Ireland. I walked the length and breadth of Britain. I walked across America. I walked through all the islands around the countries praying. God told me to do it and I prayed. And that's why I'm here today in the States. My ministry is called Walking Free. So quickly turn over to me. Is this helping you? Yeah. All right. When this church is going places, Amen. it really is. And um, the reason I'm speaking to you like this is because of the message I heard this morning. I completely changed what I was going to do tonight. And I'm doing it on purpose because before the fire falls continually in this place, you need to realize you're being prepared. And you need to realize you're not just having a hard time. Or a good time for that matter. You've been prepared. And you've got to understand why. You're beginning to pray prayers here that are, that are incredible. To pray for 20 or 100 million people. I've never heard another church saying that. Except for Dr. Rodney maybe. 
You remind me of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 10, I'm just going to mention the scripture. You don't need to turn there. Joshua was pursuing some people. And he knew that he had to totally annihilate this army that he was pursuing. And he only had a certain time to do it. And it was getting dark. And he knew that if it got too dark, he'd never be able to finish off this army that he needed to finish off. So Joshua prayed a prayer that nobody else ever prayed in eternity. He prayed a prayer in verse 12. He said, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley over, over Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Joshua had been prepared. He had seen the promised land many years earlier. He saw the giants were defeatable. He saw that the, that the fortified cities, that they could be taken. He saw there was nothing in this land that cannot be taken. Joshua was of a different spirit. And I sense a different spirit in this church here tonight. But you're going to have to start operating in it. And look at your testimonies in different ways. And not be poor me, pity party people. It's time to stand up on the inside. And actually believe the kind of stuff that you're praying for. And like Pastor said earlier, begin to pray prayers that are totally outside the box. To pray... Maybe every single home in America can hear about this boomerang church here in this town. Amen? Maybe if you start praying, praying prayers like, like Joshua did, incredible, miraculous, worldwide things can begin to happen from this church here. But we be conditioned by our life. We see here in Numbers 13, you can turn here with me if you like. We know the story where the spies were sent into the promised land in Numbers 13 into Canaan to check out the promised land. And turn down to verse 21 in Numbers 13. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as, as Rehob near the entrance of Hamath. And they came up to the south and came to Hebron, Ahiman. Uh, Sheshai and Talmai and the descendants of Anak were there now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt then they came to the valley of Eshkol and there they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes that they carried it between two of them on a pole they also brought some of the pomegranates and figs the place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the men of Israel had cut down that was a huge cluster of grapes and then they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now, give me your attention a minute. Ministers, evangelists, and preachers, we can preach our hearts out. But unless you, the congregation, the people, can begin to see that we can take the promised land. Yep. Unless you take captive every thought that you've been conditioned to think because of your past. Right. Unless you can look back in your past and allow the other conditioning, the gold and the diamonds, to condition you. If you don't do this, you'll not be able to pray prayers like Joshua, sun stand still, moon stay over the valley. Or God give us 20 million people or 100 million people. The number will never matter because if you don't be reconditioned, you'll never take the promised land. Yes. So they went in, they saw the fruit, they saw the issues in the land. And they wondered... That's why when I come over here, I wrote to President Trump, I want to meet the top man. I want to meet the people who can make a difference on behalf of addicts in this country. 
And I intend to do something radical that will reach millions of people. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I've made the biggest syringe in the world. I own the biggest syringe in the world. It's 33 feet long. It's six foot in diameter. And I pull it behind my car. It's got a bedroom in it. I can sleep in my syringe. I pimped my syringe. And I travel all over. I've, I've driven 60,000 miles in it. The smallest towns. Dermot and I have worked together with it. We've travelled all over Ireland and all over the UK and Scotland, stopping in the streets and in villages and towns, going to individual, driving over mountains just to meet one housewife who's addicted to prescription drugs, meeting doctors and millionaires and clinical psychologists and financial advisors and nurses and, and politicians who are, who are addicted to prescription drugs. And making this crazy big syringe has attracted all these people to me. And they're all Christians now, and they've all been set free. At the moment, I'm ringing people, I'm ringing millionaires while I'm over here, who I'm working with. Multi-millionaires. I'm ringing doctors and psychiatrists and, and psychologists that I'm working with, detoxing them off drugs while I'm over here with you. I'm discipling these people. Just because I come from, remember I was conditioned in business. I understand business people. The pressures that they're under. So here we are. <clears throat> Verse 24 again. The place is called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran. At Kedesh, they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told... Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are... Do you hear the other report coming out? What report is coming out of your life? What is your self-talk dictating to you about the level of success you'll have in your life? What does your self-talk say to you when you hear preaching about the fire of God coming? Or you hear preaching about God wanting to prosper you to give you a hope in the future? What is your self-talk taking? The preaching of the word is trying to break down the strongholds that have been built in your mind so you can be a people set free, not just so you can find a smile on the inside, but that we can take this land back for Jesus. Verse 29, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea, and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take position, for you are well able to overcome it. He wanted to go up at once because he knew if the people start talking about the fortified cities and the giants in the land, they would change their minds. But it was too late. The people were already conditioned. Now just put a mark there for a minute and jump back. I want to show you what conditioned these people. Jump back to chapter 11 of Numbers. So I'm after what's conditioned you here tonight. Because if you don't understand how you've been conditioned, you will not come into a place where we really take this land back. And God is wanting us to be prepared to take this land. Not just to shout hallelujah and so on on a Sunday morning. But to actually begin to believe. To be prepared to go to the president. Not just to get your name in the newspapers that this Irish man met the president. But to actually go there and to bring something intelligent from the streets. That can become part of the strategy of the United States of America. To make a difference for addicted people. Both the wealthy and the poor. Maybe 
God has chosen the people the world looks down upon and considers to be nonsense to confound the intellects of the intellectuals. Amen? I think sometimes I almost sound intellectual myself, which must be a miracle. Some people call me a nut, and I said, you're right, but I'm screwed to the right bolt. Numbers chapter 11. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it. Give me your attention. If you have a complaint in this church, there is a method of dealing with it. It's in Matthew 18. You go and you talk to each other about it. If you've, got a way, if you've got a problem with the way the church is run, you come to the elder. You come to the leader. And you talk about it. You do not complain amongst the congregation. If there's an issue, the leadership here is mature enough to deal with it and to move things forward or else to help you come to terms with it that you can deal with it. Amen? Amen. So don't complain. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord, who wants to please the Lord? But complaining will displease the Lord. And his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. This morning we preached about we can see rain and we can see fire. But there are some fires we need to put out before the fire of God can come. And that's what I'm talking about tonight. In verse 3, so he called, sorry, verse 2. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. A church can never take the fire of God to its city or a town or a village or a nation or to the world until the fires of negative conditioning have been put out, until the strong ability and habit, habits are not just drugs and drink, until the habit of complaining is broken within the church. And some of you need to, comp- some of you need to repent tonight. You need to change your way of thinking. Something you need to come out and change your way of thinking about yourself. It's warfare you're in. Yes, that's right. The fight that you're in is not carnal. It's none of the flesh. It's mighty through God at the tearing down of strongholds. You need to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Your thoughts are coming from your conditioning. You're looking back at your past, even your past from yesterday. And you have a voice from yesterday coming into you, causing you to complain today. And you're displeasing the Lord because you've not found the courage. You might as well have a stammer. You don't know how to speak about the issues. And it's time to talk. James 5.16 says, if we confess our faults to one another, it brings healing. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness, all unrighteousness means the unrighteous things we have done, but shouldn't it also mean the unrighteous things done to us? Yeah. That's right. A lot of churches I go to, like verse 2, then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. A lot of ministers and leaders and pastors are so busy putting out the fires of complaining amongst the congregation. Because the congregation will not take the opportunity of taking captive every thought and doing their own personal spiritual warfare to take captive every thought. You know, for an addict to get set free, you've got to have a vision for the future. 
There's a vision, an incredible vision being put out here in this church. But you guys have to get behind it 100%. And if you have a genuine complaint, deal with the complaint the way the scripture tells us to. And don't let it linger. Let's, let's immediately take the promised land. Yes. Let's not wait. Yes. Let's not linger. So we call the name of the place Tabra, which means complaining. How many churches do I go to that they might as well be called Tabra? Because when I go in, everybody's complaining to me. They won't speak to the pastor. They come up to me, oh, evangelist, uh, evangelist John, you know, this is going on in our church and that's going on. We don't like this. We don't even like the color of the seats. Uh, they've got these curtains on the windows. They're just, they're just not, they don't go with the rest of the color in the church. And they're all complaining. Now the mixed multitude were among them yielded to the intense craving. So the children of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? They had a life-controlling problem of complaining. Is that what your testimony is? No. Amen. They said to themselves, their self-talk. We remember the fish with which we ate freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. Were you ever fasting? And you're about a week or so into a fast and you're starving with the hunger. Okay. And you think about you walk past a super, you walk past a, a restaurant and the smell is coming out of the restaurant. And you think of the leeks and the fish and the, and the, and the, 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 the T-bone steak. And you think of all this and, you, and you're drooling at the mouth, remembering. And you, you feel like giving up. You've had a vision for this fast to see it through for whatever length of time you're going to do it. But you give up because you remember the food from where you came from. Verse 6, but now our whole being is dried up. Listen to the self-talk. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes, complaining. Now the manna was like coriander seed and this color like the color of bedelium. The people went about and gathered it, ground it in millstones or beat it in the mortar and they cooked it in pans and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the Jew fell on the ground in the camp at night, the manna fell on it. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted me, Pearl Moses? Why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? I know a lot of ministers who want to give up the ministry. Because the burden of the pe complaining people that are around. You guys aren't. You guys are of a different spirit. You guys are of Caleb and Joshua. Amen. Okay, so I'm not pointing out stuff here. But there will be small remnants of stuff in your thinking. There will be some stinking thinking in there. And tonight is going to get dealt with. Amen. Because it tries, the enemy tries to cause us to be creatures of outside circumstances. Dictated to by what we see, touch, hear and smell. And not dictated by the, by the unction of the Spirit of God that was within us. And the preaching you get in here is setting a flame on fire inside us. But we need to put out the flames in our own lives that are caused by our thinking that is conditioned through our past. Amen? So... Then he says in verse 12, Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land where you which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give? Now here we are. Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me saying, Give us meat that we may eat. 
I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. <laughs> oh, my word. If I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see this wretchedness any longer. Poor old Moses was in deep depression. He needed some Prozac or something. And he was in deep depression. He couldn't see a way out of this. But I want to show you what the problem was here. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me seventy men of elders in Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take up the spirit that is upon you, big S, so it was the Holy Spirit, and I will put the same spirit upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. A lot of churches that are working as well, they expect the pastor or the leadership to do all the work where God the same spirit that dwells in the pastor and the leadership here also dwells in you guys and it's time to come up with a vision and stand shoulder to shoulder with the leadership here and take this vision to this nation to this land and this nation this is not just a local church this is a regional church that has the it has the potential of influencing the whole nation it's not a local church I said this to pastor today he never said it to me I said this is not a local church your vision is too big and that means it needs to draw something out of you that's bigger than what you've already experienced. So you always need to put a vision in front of you that's bigger than what your present is to draw the champion out of you. I sometimes tell this story that when I had my hepatitis C treatment and I had to get 41 pints of blood, after I had my liver transplant, you know, I was very sick. I was in hospital. And um, my, I was split open across the middle here with a new liver inside me. I'd be literally delivered, okay? I had a new liver inside of me. Okay, my life was, my whole life was changed. Now, I've been an ultra-marathon runner. Man, I could run marathons back to back for days after day after day after day. For 20, 30 days, I'd run marathons, one after the other. That's how fit I was, super fit. I get shin splints and the things. I just keep running through them. You can actually run through shin splints and the far side you get healed of them. You can keep on going. A lot of people don't know how to break through the pain. Did right. they come to the place of super readiness? I was like Superman. I tell you, I was so fit. It's not, I love walking into a room. When you're that fit and you walk in, you know you're the fittest person in the room. <laughs> it's a good feeling. But then I had a liver transplant. And I wasn't fit anymore. And it broke me. And I was in intensive care. Or not intensive care. We're, we're, high dependency ward three days after my liver transplant and my self-talk begins you'll never achieve those dreams that you had now John will you oh you thought you were going around the world preaching the gospel did you look at you now all these staples across your belly here you can't even walk they have to push you around in a wheelchair what are you going to manage so I quickly pulled down instantly like Caleb said immediately I began to take the land Immediately, I began to say, that's a word for you. Yeah. There's an anointing on that right there. Do you feel it? Yeah. Immediately, you've got to begin to enter into this. Yes. So immediately, there was a, Tricia pulled down, there's a computer over the bed. I was in Edinburgh, a hospital, a hospital in Edinburgh, where I had my transplant. And they pulled down the computer. And I had a thing in my hand, and I began to, I began to search the, the internet for sports for transplant people. <laughs> something that would get me out of my wheelchair. And I found something called the Irish National Transplant Games. So I emailed them from my hospital bed, tubes coming out of my nose and everything, and I emailed them, please let me run in the next Irish transplant games. They emailed me back the next day and said, sorry Mr. Edwards, you cannot. 
Amen. Why not? I've had a transplant. Why can't I run the transplant? They said, Mr. Edwards, they said, you've only had a liver transplant three days ago. Nobody has ever applied to run in the transplant games after three days. I'm like Joshua. I'm not afraid to ask the sun to stand still. I'm not afraid to take the promised land immediately, take captive thoughts immediately. I wrote back, I said, I said, I'm not like other people. I'm of a different spirit. I said, I want to run in the national transplant. I believe I can be champion of Ireland. They said, no, Mr. Edwards, but I bugged them so much that they had a special meeting about me. And they wrote back and said, Mr. Edwards, we've had a special meeting about you. And I believe heaven is, has a group of people, a group of, a group of angels up there waiting to have a special meeting for Boomerang Church, for the people who will come together, who begin to believe that the champion in you is about to arise to take this land for Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I... So eventually they gave me and said, okay, Mr. Edwards, if your consultant will give you permission, we will let you run the Irish National Transplant Games. A few months later, that got me out of my wheelchair and I began to walk, bent over like this. I remember the first time walking across the ward in the hospital. It was tougher and I wrote my journal afterwards. I wrote, that 20 meters was tougher than walking across the United States of America. It took more focus, more effort for me to get up and do that. And for the first steps that you need to take in the plan that God has for you, it's going to take everything within you. It's going to take the same spirit that Joshua and Caleb have. You cannot make it if you're a complainer. Yes. If I had said for one second, per me, Look at the state of me. Look what the enemy is doing. I give the enemy any credit. I said, no, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I ran the Irish National Transplant Games. And you're looking at the Irish champion in the 1,500 meters, the 800 meters. I won every, and the 400 meters. And I got second place in the long jump. I did. It shows you the police chased me for all them years. It paid off in the end. All things work together for the good. It kind of puts a new slant on that scripture, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm the artist champion. I'm of a different spirit. And I'm a partner to this church here today. I don't do that in every church because some churches can't take it. Because they're operating in an old wineskin. But this brand skin, this, this wineskin here is brand spanking new. And it's waiting for new oil to be poured in. Amen. Amen. Then, three years ago, my hepatitis C was beginning to get bad again. I was getting sick again. And I thought, I need to get it treated. I need to treat this so I can still maintain being a champion. So I asked the hospital to give me the treatment. They said, John, it's a really tough treatment. You have to get, because you've got a liver transplant, you have to get, you have to, what was the name of them, Trish? Interferon. I had to get three treatments. I forget the name of them now. Three serious. One was chemotherapy. Because I had skin cancer at the same time. And so I said, okay, let's, let's do it all. This Miss Redworth, this is really hard. I said, I can do it. I'm of a different spirit. <laughs> so they began to give me all the three, three, Irish people say three. They began to give me the three treatments, three treatments at once. <laughs> and um, so my body stopped making blood. And over that few months period, I had to get 41 pints of blood transfused into my body. One Saturday morning, I, was, I couldn't even walk up the stairs without having to sit down, the sweat pumping out of me, out of breath. 
I had so little oxygen in my blood. And one Saturday morning, Tricia was going out and she had a tracksuit on. She was going to do a 5K run in a park in Bradford. It's a, it's a thing that a lot of cities do in, in the UK. And I said to Tricia, Tricia, I'd love to go with you. And she looked at me with those eyes and as if to say, I know you would, honey, but I would look at you. I couldn't even have a shower without having to lie down afterwards. I said, Tricia, I'm going to try. I'm of a different spirit. And that's why I wrote down 22 things. Tricia got alongside me and helped me up out of bed and helped me into the car. She knew I couldn't do it. I knew I couldn't do it. But boy, was I going to try. And we got down to the race in the park and she helped me across the road. And I'm standing there. All the other runners, about four or five hundred runners, are looking at this baldy-headed old guy <laughs> with gray hair, white as a ghost. Looked like I was going to keel over any minute. They didn't see any potential in me whatsoever. But bubbling down within me was the power of God that told me I can do all things through Christ despite what my present circumstances are trying to dictate to me. Bang, the gun went off and I began to walk. I made it about 100 meters. Not bad, eh? And I couldn't go any further. Some people helped me back to the car and I waited for Tricia to finish her race. In hospital that week, I told the doctors and they rebuked me big time. <laughs> John, they said, you cannot do this. You see the giants in the land? You cannot do this. You cannot take this land. I said, I can. He said, John Edwards, you're the most stubborn patient we ever had in this hospital. I said, I know. But I ain't going to change. They said, you're not going to do it again next Saturday. I said, yes, I am next Saturday. They said, we knew you were going to say that. And they gave them money. They're all reading my books now. And I would be in getting the blood. I was preaching to every praying with people, getting blood, going around with my little trolley with the blood on it, laying hands on people and bringing the gospel all around the place, taking every opportunity. Evangelism is not what we do. It's who we are. So the next Saturday came down. Trisha helped me down again. Starting now some of the people in the race had heard my story. Oh, we heard about you, Mr. Edwards. It's amazing. They're high-fiving. They said, we wish you all the best. Wow. We really admire you for the effort you're putting into this. Bang, the gun goes off. Start walking again. I did 300 meters that day. Yeah. That week in the hospital, the doctors had a serious time on me. <laughs> Mr. Edwards, you really cannot keep doing this race. You cannot, you, you, you're going to kill yourself. I said, oh, no, I'm not. I said, stop telling me all these negative things. I said, you're meant to see the potential in me. Yeah. You guys are trying to heal me. Why are you telling me I can't do things? I can do things. I'm going to do it next Saturday. Oh, Mr. Edwards, you are so frustrating, they said. Friday, the day before the race, my phone rang. It was the hospital. Mr. Edwards, we've had a special meeting about you. <laughs> he said, we know you're not going to give in doing this race. So come in tonight and we're going to give you a few pints of blood so you can run your race tomorrow morning. I said, thanks, doctors. <laughs> so Trisha drove me into the hospital. I went in. They hooked me up to blood. I was happy as anything. They gave me the three pints of blood. Cheeks were all rosy now. Next morning, Saturday morning, I went down the race walking like this, you know, with a tracksuit on with three, three pints of somebody else's blood in me. All right, and I'm standing there. Oh, Mr. Edwards, you know, the cheeks are looking very rosy. Oh, I said, I had a few pints last night, you know. I said, I'm ready to go, man. I'm ready to go. Okay. And uh, bang, the gun goes off. I start walking. An hour and a half later, I crossed the finishing line of that race. I achieved my promised land of finishing that race. I was last in the race. I've never been last in a race in my life. 
But that day, I was a champion. Yeah. And lots of people who knew my story, they waited back, and I got the biggest cheer for any race that I've ever lived. And it reminded me of something. The race of life that we're in, to take our promised land, we're not going to do it in our own strength. We can try and we can try and we can try. And there are pause to come back and tell us we can't do it, we can't do it. But we got the blood. We got the blood of somebody else flowing through our veins. It's the blood that tells us that we get all things through Christ who gives us strength. It's the blood that tells us that all things work together for the good for those who love God. Guys, I want the revelation to come to you. You've only got one life. And you need to make the most of it. Your past is trying to stop you making the most of it. It's time to silence your past. It's time to stop going to people that you're getting counsel of who are dragging you back into the voices of your past. And it's time to come to godly people like us who will help you find the diamonds and the golden nuggets in your past that will propel you into an incredible future. We need to meet the presidents and the kings and the queens. We need to. I remember going from John O'Groats to Land's End, which is the top of Scotland, the bottom I was running. Ran the whole way. I thought, I'm going to write to the Queen. Dear Queen, John Edwards here. Okay, any chance to stay in your place when I'm passing by Balmoral Castle? You know, I actually wrote to her minister, Reverend Robert Sloan. Any chance to stay in Balmoral Castle? And he wrote back to me, well, the Queen is here during that time, Mister. we don't normally have been. Dear, dear Reverend, second letter, any chance of staying in the Queen? I said, I won't disturb the Queen. I just like to stay in Balmoral. What a cool place to stay in. So I got a letter back saying, okay, you can stay in Balmoral, okay, in the Queen's place. So I remember that day I was running, I ran ahead of the team. I was wearing a bright pink cape because it was raining, right? right bright, it was this color, it was that color, look. It was that color. Really effeminate looking, all right? Which doesn't reflect me at all. Okay, no, I don't want to borrow it. Thanks, darling. I appreciate that. No, I've renounced those things now. <laughs> But um, I came down, I was, I was outside Balmoral Castle, right? And um, the Queen's police are there. And the Queen's chapel is called Crathy Chapel. It's across the road. An Irishman standing outside. I had a pink cape on with a blue baseball cap. And I was carrying a six-foot syringe that I had made. And in the barrel of the syringe was a prayer request of families I was praying for. So I had the six-foot syringe in my shoulder with a pink cape. And I thought, what am I going to do? I thought, I've got wait, they're all way behind. They were walking, I run. They all walk, so I've got about an hour to wait for them. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I pray outside the Queen's Chapel that God will save the Queen. So we have an Irish man outside the Queen praying, God save the Queen, right? And the Queen's police drive past, and they see, they told me afterwards, they thought I looked suspicious. All right. The Queen's police come around the back of Crafty Chapel, and they ambush me. And they stop me and say, what in God's name are you doing here? And they're looking at me like this. I said, I'm praying for the Queen, officer. And <laughs> my Irish accent, I could see the funny side of it and I played it, I played it, do you understand? <laughs> I love when the police stop me now and I'm innocent. You know, and, and they said, and they said uh, Mr. Edwards, you're going to have to move on from here. I said, oh, I can't. They said, yes, you can. You can't, you're going to have to move on from here. And I said, why can't you move on? I said, I, said, I can't move on, I'm, I'm staying in the Queen's place tonight. They said, oh, they thought, oh, we've got to write one here, okay, this one's... <laughs> This one's, he said, you are not staying in the Queen's place. I said, I'm staying with the Reverend Robert Sloan in Balmoral. So I said, here's his phone number. So they rang him. They said, Reverend, we got a little Irish man here in a pink cape. And he's got a six foot syringe over his shoulder. He said, I could hear the Reverend say, oh, that'll be John Edwards officer. Just send him on over. You, <laughs> you should have seen the policeman's face that day. <laughs> As I stayed in Balmoral Castle.
I'm not telling these stories just to be funny. I'm telling you that our vision needs to be beyond anything that a pastor try and dictate to us. And Moses said to the people, verse 21, The people whom I'm among are 600,000 men on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? Look at me a minute. Moses himself was so conditioned by his past that he could not see God's hand being able to provide enough food for meat for these people. His belief in God's provision was limited. And God had to have a personal word with Moses to prepare him for the revival that was going to come for Joshua and Caleb way down the road. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 23, Has the Lord's arm been shortened? He's questioning his conditioning. Now you shall see whether I, what I say will happen to you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took up the spirit that was upon him and placed the same spirit upon the 70 elders. And it happened, and when the spirit rested upon them, that they prophesied, although they never did so again. Why not? Why didn't they do so again? Because the conditioning from their past was habitual. We need to immediately take captive every thought that rises itself up against the knowledge of the plan of God for this church. So you didn't need me to come in tonight as an evangelist just to whip you all up. You need to understand your responsibility for what God's bringing to this church. And God's using us tonight to prepare you for this great thing that's about to break out in this church. I'll be watching you guys from the UK where I live. I'll be watching to see what happens here. See how you're going to respond. I went to a church recently in, in England. I was off one Sunday morning. I went, I went to a church that I'd not been to in a while. And I went there like as if I was a new believer, seeing what way the people would treat me, knowing what some Christians can be like. Some Christians are weird. You know, and and I, I, went, I went to this church. And I went in the back and one person greeted me. Nobody showed me to a seat. I sat down in the back on the left-hand side. For the whole rest of the day, nobody said hello. The message that was preached was a liberal political message. Nothing of the deeper things of Christ in it that you already get in this place. That's why it's different here. At the end of the meeting, I waited around on purpose, securing myself, waiting to, watching the people in the church if they come over to me. Nobody came over to me. There was a hatch where they were serving tea and coffee and juice. I thought, I'll get a cup of tea. So I queued up for a cup of tea and I got to the counter and I said, can I have a cup of tea please? And the lady behind the counter said, this is the coffee queue. I said, oh. She said, the tea queue is over there. So I looked and there was a queue. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to stand at the back. So I did what a, a new visitor would do. I, I, I saddled across to the front of the queue, much to the displeasure of the Christians. <laughs> and I said, can I have a cup of tea, please? And the guy said, and the guy looked at me with distaste because I skipped the queue. And he got me a cup of tea and he plunked it down in front of me with no Christian greeting whatsoever. I took my cup of tea and went over. There were some couches that I went over to sit. There was space in the couch. I went over to sit down. I was told, you're not allowed to sit here, mister. I said, why not? It's empty. These couches are for prayer and ministering to people only. You can't sit here. Go over there and sit. So I went over there. There was no more chairs to sit on. So I sat kind of half sitting on a table. And I watched around the church. 
And I can see the little groups of people. There was one group around the sound desk. There was another group down around the pulpit talking to the leaders. There was another group of women talking about God knows what. There was men over here talking about God knows what. And they were all the little groups. And nobody was prepared to talk to me, who was the example of what a newcomer could be in that church. And it struck me of years ago, when I used to go to the benefits office for my money when I was unemployed, when I was an addict, years ago. We used to go to the benefits office and sign on and we get our cash. And I'd have fellowship with my friends in the benefits office. And then we'd all go off afterwards for, for a drink or get our drugs or whatever. And God, the Holy Spirit reminded me, he said, a lot of churches are like a place of benefits. They come in for what benefits them, but they're not prepared to work. They're not prepared to work on a Sunday morning. And that is similar to this here. They don't have a vision for really taking the promised land. But we know that Joshua and Caleb were of a different spirit. And they eventually, Joshua and Caleb, they went and they took the promised land. Is this making sense to you where I'm going with all this? So, I remember when I met Tricia. And we got married. And we got married in Dublin. We had a Celtic wedding. I got married in a kilt and the whole, the whole bit. We had a bagpipe player. We had a bagpipe player out the front. And he, his name was Michael Jackson, actually, believe it or not. <laughs> <coughs> and uh, we had a Celtic band. Uh, Irish pipes and, and uh, low whistles and violins. And it was the most beautiful wedding. My, there was no alcohol at my wedding. The scripture on my wedding, what do you call the... The bulletin, the wedding bulletin, scripture was from, uh, and Jesus too was invited to the wedding banquet. And Christ came to our wedding. The presence of God was so incredible at our wedding, wasn't it, darling? It was really amazing. Patricia had four children. I was single all my life. Four kids wasn't one of the 22 things. <laughs> all right. It completely changed my world. <laughs> I was used to going shopping on a Saturday morning with my little basket. And I get my cans of beans and my peas, my little bag of potatoes, and all the other toiletries and everything. And that was it. And I go home. I went shopping with Tricia. She's got this great big thing. I said, what are you getting that for? I was thinking of the money. Because I was living by faith at the time. She got this thing. And she put all this food in it. I couldn't believe how much food she fitted into it. I said, what are you doing, woman? I said, you can't do, you can't do this to me. I said, I'm going to have to teach you how to, be, how to shop being led by the Holy Ghost. This is, you, you're led by something else here. It changed my world. At the time, I had 11 houses and flats. And I'm going to begin to wind down with this now. And I'm going to begin to pray with people. I'm going to enter into the presence of God in a minute. I remember thinking about my life, how I'd lived successfully as a single man, living by faith, trusting God for provision. I always had money in my pocket. I always had enough left over to bless other people. But now that I was married, it took more expense. And I didn't have the normal money that I have to look after other people and to outreach the way I used to outreach because it's much more expensive. I was single for 42 years. Then overnight, there were six of us. <laughs> that is more traumatic than coming off heroin. <laughs> All right. All right. It completely changed my world. Right. <laughs> Sorry, darling. All right. The first Christmas came along. 
<laughs> right. And I also had 11 houses and flats with ex-drug addicts and former prostitutes and other people living in the house that I was discipling. I got all these houses myself, paid for the deposits, and we organized the rent and the furniture and everything for me. I was looking after all these people. It was Christmas, and I completely ran out of money. It was Christmas week. And as you're taking your promised land, you're going to have different challenges come upon you where everything will go wrong. And immediately, like Caleb said to them, you have to immediately retake the promised land. Amen. Christmas week, my car broke down. My friend lent me her car. The first day she gave it to me, the exhaust fell off it. <laughs> we had no money in the bank. Now, I've heard some people say they've no money. And then I hear they're on a holiday in the Caribbean or something like that. And I think there must be two kinds of no money. Because the kind of no money I'm talking about is no money. So I still have to get the revelation of that kind of no money. So I went around the house looking for money. I found 50 pence in the jacket pocket and a pound behind the couch. And I found five pounds. And that was all I had to my name. And all these responsibilities for the promised land that we had created, for all these people I was outreaching to. It's going to take more expense for where God's bringing you. And you have to be of a different spirit where God's bringing you to. You're going to have to have a mountaintop experience for the kind of provision that's going to come in. So the teaching that you're getting here is excellent teaching. We've all been talking about it all afternoon when you, after we had meal. We love the teaching here. It's incredible, anointed, passionate, promised land teaching that you're getting here. But you as individuals are going to have to expand your experience and your thinking to take this land. So here I was challenged Christmas week. So the two cars are broken down. They're down in the garage. Kevin, Trisha's son, my stepson, was going to lots of interviews and he had no work. So all of these things were going on. We had no money for toys or for presents for the children, Trisha's four kids. We had no money for a turkey for the Christmas dinner or a ham. We had no money for all the families I was looking after. And it's my responsibility to make sure that they, all the kids of these families had something for Christmas Day. Then one of, the guys, one of the guys I was working with who had been a drug dealer and his, and his wife was, a, they both of them were heroin addicts and the four children were heroin addicts as well. One of them was smoking drugs at 10 years of age. And we took all these into our home one by one and detoxed them and I got them into a rehab. But the police came and arrested the husband and the whole family left the rehab and arrived on our doorstep Christmas week. So all this responsibility has hit me. Where's the promised land now? Come on. So I'm preparing you for what's coming. Your promised land is on its way. You need to expand your thinking to begin to embrace the promised land that's coming. And you need to immediately be able to respond. So immediately I said to Tricia, I said, Tricia, I'm climbing up the hill behind our house. The town is Largs. It's a Norwegian name. That's where the Vikings got defeated. It means the heights. There's a big high hill at the back of our town. I said, I'm going up the hill to pray. And I climbed up. I got the five pounds. We needed a little bit of shopping. I went down, that cost me two pounds, and I had three pounds left. And myself and my friend went up the top of the hill to pray. Up on top of the hill, I could see my house way down here on the right-hand side. I could see the garage where the two cars were. I could see down at the next town where all the houses were with the former addicts and former prostitutes who were living down there who were now Christians. And I began to declare, Job 22 verse 28 says, If you declare a thing, it will be established. Yeah. I took out my little street Bible. I took out my little street Bible that I always have with me. And I, began to, and I began to pray. Oh, I don't have it today. No, I'm only kidding. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I took up my little street Bible and I began to, I began to open it up. I opened up at Philippines 4.19. And it says, My God shall supply all of my needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. These scriptures must not just be memory verses. They have to become your promised land. You've got to turn these scriptures into flesh. You've got to enter into the reality, the breadth of these scriptures. You've got to enter into such a place that these scriptures will begin to manifest in your life. You've got to enter into the reality of them. You've got to cross the Jordan for each one of these scriptures. Is he who is in you greater than he who is in the world? Yes. Have you entered into the promised land of that scripture? And I began to declare and I realized I had the faith for me as a single man, but I needed another level of faith. My God shall supply all my needs. Lord, your word says that you'll supply all of my needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Well, Lord, I've got 11 houses down here of people you gave me. They're your people. And I'm looking after them with humility and respect, God. I don't have what it takes to look after them. And I have breaks when I think of that, Father. But I'm bringing your word to you. Your word says that you meet all my needs. Their needs are my needs, Lord God. The needs of this community need to become your needs. So when you see brokenness in people out there, you've got to, be, you've got to begin to pray through that they get the breakthrough. And God will move through you. That's what revival is. And then I said, Lord, look at my house over there. You said you'd give me the exact place where I should live. That's my house right there. My stepson, Kevin, needs a job. I said, I don't have enough money for Christmas presents for my kids. I don't have enough money for a Christmas dinner for my children or my wife. And Lord, I'm provider for my home. But I'm provider through you. And I say it again. You would supply all my needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And I began to call out again and again and again for over half an hour. And suddenly a wind began to blow up in the hill like a holy hurricane. And I could feel it going around me. And I ended up leaning. And I, I got so on fire for God that I took the three pounds as God. That's all I have now. I said, that's no good to me. I cannot live by what's in my pocket for the move of God that's happening in my world. The move of God that's happening is putting demands that my pocket cannot meet. So I got I said, this is what's in my pocket. I'm going to fling it down the side of the mountain far enough so I couldn't get it later. I got and I flung it right down the side of the mountain. And I said, God, I said, now, I ain't got nothing. But I said, your word still says that you will meet all my needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And I said, my God, you said that you will meet all my needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And suddenly, I felt like as if incense was lifting up off my heart. And I felt like I was entering into the Holy of Holies. And the prayer was being deposited right at the feet of God. And I felt like God saying, I'm answering your prayer right now, son. I'm answering, I'm just delighted at your instant refusal to not allow yourself to be dictated by your circumstances but you've entered into the promised land and I said to my friend I said we can go home now and I climbed down off the mountain off the hill and I called around to my house and Trisha was waiting outside she seen me coming she had a big Trisha smile on her face and she said guess what happened when you were up on the hill and I said what well, honey she said somebody phoned up and wired a thousand pounds into our bank account 
She said, the guy who owns the garage phoned up and said, he said there must be, this is what he said, there must be a Santa Claus, he said. He wasn't a Christian. There must be a Santa Claus, he said. Because I'm after finding all the parts for your cars. I'll have them ready for you tomorrow morning. And he had told us it was too near Christmas, he couldn't get them. Somebody else phoned up and gave Kevin a job. Somebody else came in touch with the next morning and gave us hundreds more pounds. Somebody else gave us a house for the family that left the rehab, a furnished house. We had enough money to buy Christmas trees and turkeys and hams and presents for all the people that we were working with. They understood that God's a provider. And we had enough food and presents for all our children. And we had the most wonderful Christmas. And as we sat around the Christmas dinner, I remember looking at Tricia. And we kind of smiled and winked at each other. And we said, isn't God so faithful? Isn't he just so faithful? I remember Trisha and I didn't have any money left to buy each other a present. Because we had spent it on the needs of other people. We had 60 quid left for the electricity bill. And we split it down the middle. I said, you get something with 30 and I get something. So we have something to open in front of the kids so they wouldn't feel bad. We coincidentally bought each other dressing gowns, didn't we? And we opened them on Christmas morning. Thrilled at the provision of our God. As we enter the promised land. That's what God has done for us. And then after Christmas, we brought them back, didn't we? And got it with the receipts and paid the electricity bill. Because, because we're good stewards. <laughs> we're going to enter into the promised land now. We're going to commit to the deeper things of God. And I'm going to, I'm going to play some music. And I, I might in a while ask the band to come back up and do it. But just for a while, the band needs to enter into this as well. Amen. And I just ask you to, to begin to come in with me. And I, I want people, I don't want you even to wait for me to do an altar call to bring you up the, up the front here. There are things that are in your life. You don't need deliverance necessarily, but there are things that you need to be set free from. And you need to either in your seat or come up the front here and get in your face before God. As we begin to enter in to a place that's deeper in God and allow Him to take the conditioning of our pasts that will try and stop us coming into our future. Are you with me? God will come as we begin to play some of these songs and He will begin to minister to you in such a beautiful way. Now I'm going to talk through the first couple of songs here. You can lift them up and sound up a little bit. We need more of God to do this. Yeah. We need to enter into the deeper things of God. And I want you, not because an evangelist is calling you to the front, but as you feel led, maybe where you're seated, are to come up to the altar, the front, and not to wait for me or pastor or somebody to touch you, to pray with you to go out in tongues and in English and separate yourself unto God and God will begin to set some of you free over this next little while and as we feel led we'll come and we'll lay a hand with you some of you will be delivered from some stuff that's held you you'll begin to be set free from it can we just turn the music up a little bit more Father as we begin to enter into this time I pray Christ that you come by the power of the Holy Ghost Come Holy Spirit, lift it up a bit more. A little bit louder again.
Father, we take authority. We take authority tonight, Lord God, over the voices from our past, the voices that tell us that we're ugly, or we're stupid, and we're small, or we're big, or whatever it tells us. Today, we take authority over those voices, and we say we will not, we will not be dictated to any longer by voices from the past. For those of us who've been abused, physically, sexually, mentally, today we declare that we are not afraid to trust people again. That we will take a step into the promised land where we can trust. I ask you to come, Holy Spirit, rend the heavens and move amongst your people. Help us to change our thinking, Lord God. Begin to call out to God yourselves as well. God, we call out to you. This is maybe a new way of you doing it, but begin to whisper to God. I'll give you my past. I'll give you the brokenness of my relationship with my father or my mother or my auntie, my uncle. I give it to you. Set me free, Lord God, in Jesus' mighty name. I need you, Lord. More, I need you, Lord. Never before, I need you, Lord. Father, we take authority over the spiritual realms around this place, God. We ask you, Christ, our intercessor, Christ, our deliverer, Christ, our savior, come upon this place and begin to move in people's lives, Lord God. Open our eyes by the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would see Jesus, Lord, that we would see the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of God that's in Christ. <clears throat> we enter into your presence, Lord God. We move beyond our senses, what we feel, what we taste, what we touch, what we see. We launch out into the deeper things of God tonight, Father. Give him your pain. Some of you have been holding back tears. There's more of you sitting down and maybe need to get in your face or come at the front or whatever. Let's take a step into your promised land and immediately begin to pursue. Like I did when I was told I couldn't walk. I was told I couldn't run. I immediately got on the internet. You immediately need to respond to God's call upon your life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Some people in here have been abused in relationships. In marriage, you've been abused. You've been spoken down to. You've had words spoken to you that have absolutely decimated your character. They've decimated your confidence. It's decimated who you think you are. But you're beginning to emerge now as the man or woman of God. Even some guys have been put down by women in the past. Who've tamed you. The man in you has been subdued. And God is calling you forth. He's saying, come on, man of God. Begin to stand up on the inside once again. Come, Holy Spirit. 
Come Holy Spirit. God, we need you, Lord. Christ, we need you, Lord. Christ, we need you, Lord. We will run this race with perseverance. We will run, Lord God. We will run. We will stand up on the inside. We will not be dictated to by our past or by our present. But we press on towards the promised land for Boomerang Church, Lord God. We call down in faith the fullness of the fire of God. But we need you to do it, God. Your blood is sufficient to give us strength to do it lord god we need you more than the air we breathe more than the songs we sing god we need you god above and beyond everything in our world god we need you we are desperate for you lord god we call to you god we're hunger we thirst for you god we magnify your mighty name Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Spirit of God, oh Christ, we just love you so much, Lord God. Oh, Jesus. Christ will begin to appear in a new way in your life. Like in John chapter one, chapter 21, when Jesus appeared on the shore as they went back fishing. It was only John who recognized him. Because John was intimate with Christ. Peter, who was the called one. We need to see the face of Jesus. We need to be able to discern his face in times of calling, in times of impartation, in times of brokenness. Christ, please, let the spirit of wisdom and revelation come upon us. Breathe upon us, God. 
Me your face, Lord. Show me your face. Oh, get up my legs that I might stand this holy place.
Just keep your eyes closed for a moment. That scripture, just stay in the spirit. That scripture I was talked about earlier in John 21. The Jesus that we have known to this point in our Christian experience will begin to manifest in a way, as you pray these big prayers, Christ will begin to manifest in a way that you may not be familiar with. Wonderful ways. Incredible ways. The Spirit of God will begin to fall on people's houses. People around about the place will begin to get set free. When Jesus was crucified, the Jesus that John and Peter and the other disciples had walked with, he was gone. They would never see him in the flesh like that again. And in John 21, when they went back fishing, they missed him. They missed the fellowship. They missed the, missed the, the fun. They missed the teaching. They missed the, in, missed the intimacy with him. Peter at this time had blown it completely. He felt guilty, ashamed, broken as a man. John, who was intimate with him, was missing him so much. And they went back fishing. They went back doing something they never thought that they would do because their past dictated it to them that they needed to earn a living the way they used to. So they went back fishing. Suddenly, somebody appears on the shore and says, did you catch anything last night? There was something familiar about the, about the voice. But Peter, who stands for the call of God, didn't discern the voice. The calling of God is not enough to discern the voice of Christ in a place of transition. But John, who was sitting in the... In fact, his name is not mentioned. It's in his own book. He calls himself the disciple who was close to Jesus. Intimacy. Intimacy is looking. They reckon that his, Jesus was about 100 meters away on the shore. Intimacy is looking. And it begins to discern that it's the master. There was something about that voice that intimacy recognized. But calling couldn't recognize it. Suddenly, John says to Peter, intimacy says to calling, Peter, it's the master. Calling trusted intimacy. And immediately Peter dressed himself, jumped in the sea and ran to Peter who was guilty because he denied Christ and broken. He ran to the master. They had caught so many fish that it says they all couldn't pull the fish in verse 6. It says they couldn't pull the fish ashore. After Jesus got reconciled, the grace of God, he was cooking them loaves and fishes. The very stuff that he taught them about the reality of the kingdom with. And he said, to, he said to them, he said, go and get the fish that you've caught. But in verse 6, they couldn't haul them all in. In verse 11, it says, Peter on his own went and he hauled all the fish in on his own. What happened? Christ had come running looking for Peter to restore him. And he said, do you love me, Peter? He tested him. And Peter did. And when he was reconciled to Christ in the new manifestation of Christ, the resurrected Savior, a power came into him that he caused him to do what a group of men could not do together. That's why I can run a race that everybody dictates I cannot. That's why I can run a race that most other people cannot. It's nothing to do with my fleshly self. It's to do with who lives in me. Can you discern Christ? I'm going to play a song now. It's taken from Song of Solomon. It's about Christ running over the hill towards us. 
He's running over the valleys and the hills towards us in our life. And this is a song I love to sing. It reminds me of Christ coming to me in times of trouble. And as we think about taking our promised land, let's just meditate in this song and press a bit deeper into God here, okay? Christ, open up our eyes that we may see you running towards us. We see you on the horizon of our life, Lord. Our calling cannot recognize it. But intimacy searches in our heart for a new manifestation of the resurrected Christ. Jesus, take those things, God, in Jesus' name. I take authority in the name of Jesus over everything home people like. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray, God. Makasala bashaka and that is the on the Lolosh. Shukada da basaka and the little soldado so badada that is Sayandara shaka and the air. All through the valleys, through the dark of night, here you come running, my holy. Thank you. 
on in a little deeper with us now. Just begin to call out for God's Spirit to begin to move upon you. The Spirit of God would move. Father, I pray for this family, Lord God, in Jesus' mighty name. I pray for the miraculous power of God to come upon Jonathan, Lord. I lift him up to you, Christ. And I pray you'd set this boy free, Lord God. Let the miraculous power of God come upon this family, Lord. You would literally walk in and visit this home with the healing power of God that take authority over all the powers of darkness that mess upon this boy's life in Jesus' name. Pray God you'd move, Lord. Christ, we invite your incredible presence, your miraculous power, Bring deliverance and freedom to this boy, Lord God. In Jesus' mighty name, bring refreshing, refreshing, Lord God. A move of your spirit, Lord. Separate from everything man can do, move, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord God.
Kushara Bakasondololo Shokosayanda Shiala Kosombo Sadadiondo Shakana. In the name of Jesus, God, we go deeper. We go deeper into praise, Lord God. We worship you, Father. We lift up your name, Lord God. We exalt your mighty name, Lord God. We lift your name up high, Lord Jesus. You are worthy, God. You are worthy, Lord God. You are worthy, Lord God, in Jesus' mighty name. Kishola basakanda la la basakayanda. Kiroboshanda la la basie. Come on, begin to express to God now. Begin to stand up on the inside as a man and woman of God that you are. Begin to lift your hands up to the Lord. I get in your knees, whatever it is you want to do. Begin to enter in. Come on, give him praise for what he's done. He's bringing your promised land into your life. He's bringing a new world, a new experience, a new manifestation of the power of God into your families, into your personal lives, into your marriages, into your single lives, into your provision. He's bringing a miraculous power of God to visit, to land upon your world. It's time for this new revelation, for God to move with such power that it's going to blow your socks off for what God does in your life. We're saying that God would manifest like Joshua, we pray prayers like we never prayed before. We say, give you this and give us this region, Lord God. Give us this region. We are a people prepared and we give you glory, God. We give you praise, Lord God. You are king, Lord God. Night and day let incense arise Day and night, night and day And night, night and day, let incense arise. Day and night, night and day, let incense. This is our prayers going up to heaven, God. We pray for this church, God. We pray for this region, Lord God, that your spirit would move and come upon us, Lord. Day and night, we pray, God. Shira Bakayanda Lala Basaya. A Shabakayanda Labasakayana Rashidiondo. Thank you, Jesus. Media Bello. You are worthy of it all For from you come all things And to you are all things You deserve the glory Worthy of it all 
You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. O shabala lolo mosa kanda la la bosa kanda da de shedu ro sararam. Lenana samala lolo bosa da da yisiri. And day let incense arise. Day and day, night and day let incense arise. Day and night, night and day, let me. Iraba sabalaba sondolaba kasere de ono sudorosu. Nalalalaba sararusho dalalakaya nanamasire. Merele lolo sobololo la sararalaleando lalalalomo sodare. Oh God, bring this promised land to this church, oh God. Let our incense arise, oh Lord. You are worthy of it all. From you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. Come, Holy Spirit. Just bear with me a while. It's about twenty past seven, but bear with us another while. We often do this all night long in the UK, but we're just going to go another little while here. Just a few more songs. I want to lead you into a place where intercession begins to break forth for this. What God's doing, and I've discerned that God's doing something here. God's brought us up here. And Pastor Rodney was on to me this morning. He said, John, he said, I thought you were going to stay in Florida. He said, no, I'm up here. And I explained where he said, oh, that's great that you're up here. I was up there before. He said, God's doing something special in that place. I said, amen, Pastor. That's right. Amen, Pastor. There's something special happening here. But we've got to enter into it. Like me, when I got married, we're not going to go shopping with a little basket anymore. We're going to go shopping with a great big, a great big trolley. And we're going to believe for much more of everything. We're not going to go in. We're not going to go in. We're not going to let other people dictate to us what happens here. We have heard God for ourselves. He's our Savior, King. My God, we are walking with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are walking with God. Have you any idea? What a true revelation of what the resurrected Christ is. And he's standing on the very shore of our lives, on the horizon of our world. He's standing. He's waiting for us to discern him. But in our busyness, we're not used to waiting upon the Lord till we see him. Lord, open our eyes that we might see you, Lord God. You're our Savior, King, Lord God. Lord, we look to you tonight, Father. Not to the touch of man, but the touch of you, Lord God. Jesus name come Holy Spirit we will not give in you have set us free for freedom's sake hallelujah Lord hallelujah Lord hallelujah father
Spirit of God. la 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 May Allah bless the Lord so kindly Some of you will receive new tongues tonight. Come on, let's enter in now. Come on, worship you. You are our King. You alone are king. Who's the God to carry this? The heavy cross. Come on now, let's enter in. Yeah. Yeah. Love you, Lord. I worship you. You may drive glass. Oh, and Begin to sing out in tongues, come on. Take this off, yeah.
on now. Hallelujah, Lord. We enter in, O oh Lord. We enter in, O oh Lord. We go past everything we've ever experienced, God. Into your mighty presence, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. We enter in, God. We enter in. We enter in. We enter in. We enter in. We move past every experience. Letting go of the past. Moving on with our life. Oh, we worship you, God. We bless your mighty holy name, oh God. Okay, guys, I'm going to play a really unusual song for you. I believe, I believe this song, you all know this song, but I want you to enter into this song. It's a Christmas song, but I want to enter, you enter into it differently than you've ever entered this, into this song before. As I begin to play it now. I want you to understand the Lordship of Christ. your Lordship Christ in Jesus mighty name
As we begin to move in the things of God, it has to turn into intercession. Jesus is always giving. Even on the cross, he hung there. And instead of just feeling sorry for himself, he reached out, which he couldn't do. He reached out to touch other people. He ministered to the guy, the criminal beside him on the cross. He looked after his mother, asked John to look after his mother. He, he, he said, God, Father, forgive the people who are murdering me. They know not what they do. In the same way, this needs to turn into intercession for the people who, for our families, for ourselves, but for the people around us, if we're going to enter into this promised land, if the fire of God is going to fall in this neighborhood, we're going to see supernatural miracles. This is what needs to happen. So just enter into the reality of this, this, this song as well. Father, we lift up our families. We ask you we bless our families, God. Set our families free, God. The bound in our families, liberate them, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Lord, we break the power of poverty over our lives, Lord God. We declare blessings and prosperity, Lord God, that we can meet the needs of other people. Lord, we pray for our community, Lord God, for the suicidal, for the broken. 
Lord, for the, those in debt, those, those, God, who are just ready to give up, Lord God. Please send your Holy Spirit, God, and touch these people, Father. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Oh, God. Oh, God, we call out to you. God, we call out for this land. We call out for the, We pray for the President of the United States of America that you protect him. That you look out and cause him to work in godly, righteous ways, Lord God. To see this land taken back to the land of dreams. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' mighty name. Lord, we call out for this nation, God. We call out for this nation, Lord God. We call out for this nation, Lord God. Give us this nation, God. Let it be a nation that serves God once again. A nation where you manifest your presence, Lord God. A nation where you move through the length and breadth of this land, Father. By the power of the Holy Ghost, Lord Jesus. A nation, God, where your name will become famous. Where your name will become synonymous with freedom and blessing, Father God. And salvation and deliverance, Father. Press in, press into God. Press into God yourself in tongues, in English. Press into Him. Press in for a deeper revelation. Find Christ, your intercessor. Lord, bless this land, Lord God. Send your Holy Spirit to bless this land, God. In the name of Jesus. Set the addicts free, Lord God. Set the captives free, Lord God. Lord, provide for the broken, for the poor. Bring the homeless off the streets, Lord God. Help us in our churches to do this, Father. Do all these works that you want to do.
We cry out to you. We call on your name. We call on your mighty name, O God. We call out for this land, O God. We call out for this nation, God. We call out for this neighborhood, Lord. Amen, Lord. Amen. We are, Father. We are a house of prayer. This is a house of prayer, Lord God. Lord, we declare that we will pray for this nation, God, from this place, Lord God. And we believe for the promised land to manifest, Lord God. We believe it, Father, because we are royalty. We are a royal priesthood. We may be a peculiar people, Lord, a people set apart for our God to bring this message. Just once again, guys, just stand there, just keep your eyes closed. We're just going to go a little bit deeper in this for a while. I want to speak to you ladies here. This is for you guys as well, but particularly you ladies. Some of you girls, some of you women in here, you have had stuff happen in your lives where you've been mistreated. You have had voices into your world that, tries, that has tried to make you less than what you actually are. But you are princesses under God. You have a specific calling under God to do much bigger things than what you actually realize. In worship, you team, you have music, you've got, you've got albums, you've got songs that can literally go around the world that every house in this nation can be singing. You've got to change your way of thinking and begin to apply yourself to write the lyrics and write the lyrics, to get together, to get people who can teach you how to do it better. Begin to strategy. Take that promised land, immediately begin to do it. Don't wait till next week. Start thinking and praying about it today that you begin to do it. You other ladies in here who are moms who are busy, you think that your time is stretched, your plate is full, and God would say to you, your plate may be full, but it's time not to take stuff off your plate, but it's time to get a bigger plate as so you can fit more onto it. God will give you creative ability to do this. He'll show you stuff that you can cut out, that you can become the women, the mighty, the women of God that God wants you to be, that you can, God's going to give you ideas, he's going to give you strategy, he's going to give you plans for taking different things around this place. And you guys, as we play this next song, it's called Royalty. It's about, about women. It talks about women being queens. But I want us guys to think that we are kings under God. And this is the day of our inauguration as well. Us men, it's time for us to step up to the plate and take this. Be men's men, real men. It's time for the wimps to leave Christianity. And it's time for the real men to stand up and be men in our households. Be men on the streets. Be men to our government. And to stand up against political correctness and every high thing that's exalted itself against the knowledge of God. Amen. So let this song really minister to us guys and us ladies as well. In Jesus' name. And we'll just do another couple of songs if you're okay with it after this. And I'll begin to wind it down.
Just keep your eyes closed. I feel strongly impressed just to tell you a little story. This story is prophetic. Um, first of all, I need to say, uh, for pastor, I believe prophetically the nations are going to open up to you. I believe doors are going to open up and you are going to minister before kings and queens in different, in different countries that your ceiling has been taken away tonight. That it's time to begin to believe way above and beyond because what God is about to do here and I'm declaring it before it happens. You see, I do a new thing. Even before it happens, can you not see it? God is going to call, cause people to call on you and to call on this congregation behind you to eventually release you and to do things to train people to that they move into the place where they actually are believing for the things of God to actually happen. So many people's ceilings are low, but God has caused you to lift your ceiling to a high place, and today it's lifting even higher. And God will call you to the nations. It will be declared. It will happen. And I will stand with you one day, and you will say, John, look what the Lord has done. Maybe in Dublin I'll stand with you. And we say, look what the Lord has done. A number of years ago, as I began to pray in this fashion, I, I do nights like this a lot, and we go all night long. We have breakfast together the next morning. And it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And sometimes we do it for over 10, 12 days, and have revivals with it. One day, I was in my church, and I was, this is prophetic. This is going to happen to you here. This is definitely going to happen. Test what I say. One day in the church I was in in Scotland, a guy called in. He was the main drug dealer in the entire region. And I've been praying for these guys. This is my ministry. I was the evangelist with this church. We had a revival. We grew from 35 to over 300 in a very short space of time. This guy called in and he said, I've been hearing about what you're doing on the streets. And I shared the gospel with him, but he didn't receive. And I had, to be, I had to be prepared to step in to do stuff I'd never done before. And this is what I'm saying to you. People are going to call. They're going to place demands on you as a church in here, as leadership, to do stuff you've not done before. And you need to press into the presence of God to be prepared to do the. You literally need to be baptized, in, not in water, but baptized my old mentor, Mr. Black, who, who's long dead now, he worked in the Hebridean Revival with Duncan Campbell, an incredible man who was my mentor. And he used to tell me, John, he said, John, God's going to, no Scottish word, he's going to sunder you. He's going to separate you completely away from the flesh and the world and the devil and everything. So you begin to do things you'd never dreamt that you'd do, like meet presidents of Mr. President Trump and others. And I will meet the president. Amen. And... We walked out of my office, and the guy wasn't saved, but I knew it was a significant meeting. A level of ministry we work in, we, we work in as if we believe the person has to get saved on the day that we meet them. It's time to move on from that and to be a godly influence in the area, and it's going to be a progressive move of God that happens in your neighbor. Do you get that? A lot of outreach teams, they go treasure hunting and they want the healing to happen there or the miracle to happen. And that will happen. But this is an event tonight that is the beginning of part of a process where God's bringing you to. 
So I went out and the guy was getting into his car. He had a souped up drug dealer's car with a big spoiler on the back, a white sports car. And he st tried to start it and it wouldn't start. And he was a bit embarrassed. And I said to him, I, I said to him, half joking, I said, God will fix your car. And he laughed at me because he wasn't prepared to believe. And I half joked, I was fully serious, but I pretended to him I was joking in case it didn't work. <laughs> and, and I laid hands on the car. Sometimes we get a fake it till we make it when you're stepping into this new area. It's not, you don't have to be the perfect man or woman of God, but we're royalty. You will learn by experience. And you've got to, you've got to, so I laid hands in the car with a smile on my face, but privately I'm praying, oh God, let this car start. I said, I command this car to start in Jesus' name. I said, try it now. I said, but it's jokingly. And he tried it and it started immediately. That simple thing begun to move amongst the drug addicts in the west coast of Scotland that blew me away. About two weeks later, I got a phone call from that guy. He said, I was amazed by how my car started that day. He said, so I've arranged for all the drug dealers in the region to come to my house to meet with you. Will you come around and meet them? I thought, yes, this is an answer to prayer. This is an answer to prayer. It's the, it's, it's the promised land I was believing for. Because I was praying for the crime rate to go down, for all these guys not to die, but to be saved and forgiven. So in my zeal, I called around on my own, which was a mistake. I should have gone two by two. I called around on my own, and he lived in an upstairs house, and I walked in. There was nine major drug dealers in the house. As soon as I got into the house, he slammed the door behind me, and he locked it. And I thought, wow, I'm in trouble. These guys are going to hurt me. So I did a quick risk assessment. I thought, if I jump out the window, maybe I'll be able to get away and not break my leg. But then he said, he said, guys, I told you that John Edwards is a drug dealer. <laughs> and that he's got a new batch of heroin to give to us. That's the only way he could get me, because there was a heroin famine in the neighborhood. So he told him I was a drug dealer. So I'm thinking, I'll kill you. In Jesus' name. But he said, please, guys. He said, we're all sick of the life that we're living. We're all addicted. We're taking the drugs that we're meant to be selling, and we're sick of it. He said, there's people dying that we're dealing to, and we're all privately tired of it. He said, John's a recovered addict. He's a Christian. Let's give him 10 minutes to speak to us. And it was a big argument, and uh, they were fighting amongst each other, and eventually they said, okay, we'll give him 10 minutes. 40 minutes later, I was still speaking to them, and every one of them gave their hearts to Jesus. And they all got saved, not just said a sinner's prayer, but they actually had an encounter with God in that room. As I began to visit them in their homes, in their individual homes, the presence of Christ began to fall in their homes, and they were completely blown away by the presence of Christ. And they would say things like, the presence of God is stronger and nicer than any heroin or cocaine we've ever had. It's good. One of those guys is now a Church of Scotland minister. I must have prayed too hard for him. Another one of the guys was running a rehabilitation center, a Christian rehab. Another one planted a church. Another one works in prison. Another one of the girls, she looks after her blind mother who just died recently. She totally gave her life to looking after her mother in her old age. It was a move of God. And drug addicts and drug dealers began to get saved up and down the whole west coast of Scotland. The police came to visit me and said, John, we thank you for what you're doing in the neighborhood. The crime rate has gone down. 
It all came by people visiting me in the church. As you continue live streaming, I suggest to you, you let the neighbors know you're live streaming, if you haven't already. And be conscious when you're speaking that you're speaking to them too. These people, I prophesied, they will call into your church. You've got to be prepared to go and be organized more than I was and go two by two to these people. Don't give them your personal, I'm not going to do a training thing, don't give them your personal contact details. Have a number here in the church you can give them that'll be a helpline. And begin to work with these people. They won't be just the addicts. They'll be the broken, single mothers. They'll be the old folks who have nobody to help them. They'll be the sick people. They're going to start calling in this place. Yeah. I'm telling you, after I leave, they're going to start coming here. Amen. I'm drawing, we're drawing a line on the sand today. And we're saying, yeah. enough of the old. It's over. Yeah. There's, a new, there's a new time starting. We're believing for the promised land. Amen. So I'm going to play one last song. And it's called Baptize My Heart. And I want you as individuals, you notice I've hardly prayed with anybody, because I want you to learn to press into God. Because to take the promised land, you have to be able to instantly, immediately turn to the presence of God when something comes into your world to try and dictate failure or defeat or brokenness into your world. Like when we had no money at Christmas week, instantly had to climb the hill to remind myself I'm raised up and seated in heavenly places. That's why I went up the hill. God doesn't hear any better from up a hill. But I had to position myself where I'm spiritually seated to remind myself where I'm seated so I could pray from that place, far above all power and principality and over every name that can be named and declare the word of God so I could see my house, declare the word over my house, over the addicts, over the two cars and all the other situations and bring those situations into obedience to the word of God. Is the only thing that God says that is raised up above his name. I have raised my word even above my name, he says. And I watch over it to see that it is performed. And God just tells us in the book of James, be ye doers of that word and not hearers only. So many Christians are coming and we're just hearers and not doers. Be ye doers and not hearers only. Do not be like the man who looks into a mirror, the perfect law, the word of God, and on turning away immediately forgets what you look like. But be ye doers and you will be blessed in all that you do. That word will come to pass if you do it. And that's what this visit is about from us guys. So I'm going to pray, baptize my heart now. And I, you're, you've got to echo that words of this song privately. And don't be quiet. You're a little bit reserved. Don't be quiet. Break out into God and let God know that, you're, that, that you want him to hear you. And ask him to baptize you with fire. To baptize you fully with the Holy Ghost yeah. and bring you into a place that you're totally sundered, yeah. separated unto God. Yes. Now we've led the boss of the Mexican Mafia to Christ. We've led assassins to Christ. We've led IRA terrorists in Northern Ireland and UVF terrorists to Christ. Murderers, bombers. We've led them to Christ because we've boldly gone to yeah. see these people. They're just waiting. Even murderers are waiting for people to knock on their door to tell them that they can be forgiven. But fear, the giants of fear, the fortified cities in our mind stop us from going to these people and they're waiting to be saved. They're the ones. That boss of the Mexican Mafia has now spoken to tens of thousands of gang members all over America. And I met him because when I was living homeless on purpose, reaching homeless people, I lived for 10 months on the streets in London 
when I finished rehab. And a guy heard about me and he offered me a house. He used to be an assassin with the Mexican Mafia. He got saved on death row in San Quentin prison. And he offered me a room in his house in King's Cross in London. Everybody said, you can't take that. I said, of course I can. I took it. And he became a mate. He was the nicest murderer I've ever met. <laughs> and we, did, we led hundreds of the top drug dealers and pimps and prostitutes to Christ smack bang in the middle of King's Cross. God. Two by two. So as I play this song, will you please, don't wait for the man of God to come to you. Will you please enter in yourself, get yes. in your knees, get in your face, cry aloud to God, weep if you need to. Do whatever it is to press it and then put this into practice at home. Turn your radio off at home. Turn your TV off at home. Put the worship yes. on and enter into it. First thing in the morning. Some of you, you can't even get out of your bed before the stinking thinking has started. Yeah. You haven't even swung your legs out of your bed and already is telling you you're going to have a terrible day. Yeah. Instantly, have your iTunes or your worship, whatever method you use, have it ready. First thing, open your mind, bump, worship. Yeah. I worshiped all the way through my hep C, all the way through my treatment, all the way through my liver transplant, all the way through everything, all the way through, through, through pretended poverty where the enemies tried to attack me and prosperity has come. Yeah. Miraculous breaks from totally unexpected places. I remember when I walked the length and breadth of Britain praying for rehab buildings to help the addicts. And I had no money whatsoever, living by faith. And my wife had two young heroin addicts living in the home, two young girls. We were detoxing them off smack, heroin. And I was out and about working in the town, picking syringes up, knocking on drug dealers' doors, sharing the gospel with all these people, speaking to drug agencies all over the town and, and other people, going into the businesses, sharing my testimony with anybody who would listen to me, anybody. Praying with people. If they're a bit pale looking, I prayed for them for healing. If they looked at me funny, I cast something out. <laughs> Everybody was hearing the gospel in the town. I helped a farmer's son. And one day the farmer got in touch with me and said, John, will you come down to see me? I drove down 20 miles to see him. He said, John, do you see that barn there? He said, I've got planning permission to turn that into two homes. You can have that for rehab if you can find the money to do it up. It was just two broken walls with no broken roof on it. And I went off just doing what God's called me to do on the streets, knocking on doors, doing what I'm doing, praying in, God, we need your provision. But God had told me that's going to be a rehab. But I had nothing in my pocket, nothing in my bank to meet those needs. And I work on my own, a small ministry. And one day I came home and Trisha was in the house and the two young girls, we were detoxing. Our washing machine had broken down and Trisha dragged the washing machine out in the back garden and put the hose in through the window, an old twin tub washing machine so the hose could rinse out in the sink. And I came home and I saw Trisha with a broken washing machine. And the provider in me rose up and I said, God, I, said Je I said, Jesus, help me get a washing machine. I said, Trisha, I've got faith for a washing machine. I didn't have the faith for the over 100,000 pounds to do the rehab, but I had faith for a washing machine for my family. All God wanted to do is express the faith of what's in front of us. Yeah. And God will provide for what's ahead of us. So I went out around all the towns, all the shops, and I came eventually to this charity and I was speaking to the receptionist. I said, I need a washing machine. Have you got one? Can you get me one? I've got two young girls. I'm detoxing them off heroin. I need a washing machine. A man heard me in the back. Send that man in here, he said. I went in the back and the guy said, what do you need a washing machine for? I told him. He said, I'll buy you a washing machine. He said, is there anything else that you need? I said, well, now that you mention it, I said, I could do it with a dishwasher. <laughs> so I came home with a washing machine and a dishwasher. <laughs> I continued working on the streets. Meeting the needs of the people in the community. Too many of us are locked inside our church doors.
and we're not meeting the needs of the people in the community. We've got to go out to the people. Go therefore, and I will be with you. And this is how God is with us. Not just his nice presence, it's his provision. It's his healing is with us. That's why I'm so fit after all my sickness. Because God, God can't afford to lose me yet. <laughs> You've got too much for me to do. So I need to be fit for it. So this guy phoned me about a week or two afterwards, and he said, John, I want to see you again. When I got down to the man's office, the guy who bought the washing machine, he said, John, it's like you're omnipresent. He said, I'm hearing about you everywhere. You're working with all kinds of people. I said, I know. He said, do you know who I am? I said, no, not really. He said, you're the bloke who bought the washing machine. He said, yeah, but I'm in charge of the, one of the biggest trusts in the south of Scotland. He said, we have money put to one side to help drug addicts in this area, but we couldn't find anybody to do it until you came along. Is there anything that you need some extra money for? I said, come on, I'll show you. I drove the 20 miles to the rehab building. And I showed it to him. A week later, he gave me a check for 100,000 pounds. And then he gave Tricia 10,000 10, pounds to buy the furniture for her. Man, she was in shop in heaven for about two weeks. <laughs> as we baptize ourselves into the fullness of what God has for us, yeah. as we don't live our lives for ourselves, as we live our lives on behalf of other people. My life is not about preaching on a Sunday. My life is about what I do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday is the tip of the iceberg where I'm not your regular preacher. We do stuff a bit different. We like to bring people in to meet Christ himself and not just have a touch from me. And have a touch of God upon the Lord and impart vision, impart strength and belief and ability that you begin to do stuff like you've never done before. I never forget watching the rehab, the guys, and I got so much persecution for it from the local neighborhood. I opened another rehab at the same time in the Shetland Islands. I opened Scotland's first women's center in Aberdeen, all at the same time. God provided three buildings, bang, bang, bang. And people attacked me. The newspapers attacked me. John Edwards, former junkie, going to ruin the tourism in Shetland Islands. There is sometimes a manifestation of the entity of the accuser of the brethren before a breakthrough happens. And you have to be able to navigate that to come to the breakthrough. Yes. You've got to know how to take authority in darkness yeah. before you see the full light of God doing a job. You've got to be able to see in the dark to get treasures out of darkness. How else can we get them? Yeah. You don't see in the dark by eating your carrots. You see in the dark by learning how to worship God in the middle of it. Yeah, That's right. So as I play this song, I want you to do whatever it is you need to do. And we're going to wind down then. And we're going to go on our way. We may or we may not see you again. But I'll be watching from the horizon of your life to see you casting your net in over the other side. There will be so many fish caught. But you will have the strength to haul in the net in yourself. You will not have to call other churches because you will have a new revelation of Christ as we play this song.